bit when I'm, I'm this young, hungry designer, really keen on my craft. And I'm like, this game's going to Metacritic at like, you know, 80 above. Like it's going to be the, and the guy was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> He's like, I don't want that. And I was like, what? He's like, I want a six. He's like, make me a six. <laughs> and wow. I, yeah. And I There's was like. There's a man who understands his place in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we're talking to veteran game developer Trent Custers, co-founder of League of the Geeks, best known for the strategy game Armello. This episode was recorded on September 8th, 2023, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. All right, so... Uh... What we usually start with is what's the what's the first video game that you remember? First video game I remember is definitely Pong. Like funnily the enough. Pong, okay. Like <laughs> literally Pong. On... It's about like ten percent of the people I interview actually it starts out with Pong. Yeah, I mean I was <laughs> I was young. Uh-huh. Like I, you know, I so I'm I'm 36 now and I missed all of the like console sort of before the NES. It was the first console I had, but there was a kid across the road that had some kind of Atari. I have no idea uh-huh. on like the Atari models or anything like that. It was just so before my time as like a video game conscious kid. But we went across the road and he was he was a kid who was like into he was the cool kid. He had the Reebok pumps and you know race go <laughs> race go-karts and had Pong and this huge German shepherd that was I remember the German Shepherd being pretty much as tall as I was. So right. that's my earliest memory. Of Pong, definitely, of a video game, definitely, is Pong. Pong on an Atari? Yeah. On Atari, on the living room TV, um, while the parents were getting boozy behind us having you know, a <laughs> dinner party with the, with the neighbours, yeah, in oh. the, the house of the Scudamores with their names, yeah. Okay, well, very appropriate place to start. Yeah, but that, that street actually had, it's kind of where video games began for me, you know, like people, some folks, it was like their dad or, you know, um, maybe they played with their mom or it was the local arcade or something. But for me, it was absolutely, and I've never really thought about this before, but it was absolutely that street, Manoon Road in Clayton in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Like Mm -hmm. that was where I grew up. I spent the years of three to 11 or so, 11 or 12. And it was, you know, I sort of have friends, like games attached to friends. I remember the gold NES cartridge for Legend of Zelda that Fabian down the road had. And then there was another kid whose name I forgot that had Batman on. Everyone seemed to have an NES. But then there was like, you know, the kid across, I never had a Super Nintendo. We skipped that generation. What did did you get? I got an NES one year for Christmas, me and my brother. So I have a brother who's two years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And um, he was into video games too, but I think they definitely captured me in a a much stronger way. Uh, And... We got an NES and I remember, and this was kind of my my entire sort of like game playing childhood was I would get pocket money and I would go to the local pawn shop. You know, we have, they're called cash converters in Australia, this, this <laughs> chain, of, chain of, um, of pawn shops. And I would just, whatever the games were there is the ones that I could get. Cause they were like 10 or $15 and my parents were not the kind to be into video games. They played one with us called Trog. Trog. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was, have you ever heard of it? No. So it was a top down. This is the only game that they ever played with us. My parents went into games, but it was a game that was top down. And if you imagine like a Pac-Man maze, I guess it was like a take on Pac-Man now that I think about it, but 
you're you were dinosaurs and you know you Wait, would go around and you'd turn game or yeah. on Nintendo or no, it was on NES. It was like okay. a four player NES game that we okay. play as a family. Okay. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and it was like a Pac Man like I guess right. now that I think about it. And you would whenever then there was a thing like a mechanic where you got obviously maybe retconning this whole thing <laughs> and how it actually plays. But I remember there being something like an egg, and then if you get the egg, you turn into a T Rex and you can eat everyone else or something. We played that a lot as a family, but. My parents were never like super like video game or tech literate. We had a company, like a family business that my dad had like a bungalow sort of out the back that he would work from. And there were work computers in there, which I'll get onto in a sec. But because of this, I guess most of my games, I was like, I had to buy them from the local pawn shop. And so I'd go and I'd remember my face pressed against the glass of the cabinet and be looking and there's no new ones in there that I wanted. And then every now and then there'd be one and I'd be like, what's that? Like I remember the Shadowgate box art or whatever, like blew my my little mind. And I was like, what's that? And I got it and I could only progress three screens before I couldn't play anymore. I was so young. Wow. Um, Your games at the pawn. I I never (laughs) thought of going to the pawn shop. I mean, pawn shops, I think maybe are in different places in the US. I don't even know where a pawn shop would be. But like in Australia, is this like people would go, are they using it essentially as like a used item store or? Yeah, it's kind of a middle ground. Because in the US, the idea is, you know, you pawn the item, but you're going to get it back. Yeah. Like I, I actually don't. Taking... That's a really great, great question. I don't know if it works that way in Australia, but I definitely know there is that seedy underbelly element of most of it is probably stolen goods in these pawn right. shops or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. they did act as kind of thrift stores as yeah. well, you know. So kind of thinking of like you know buying someone's copy of Zelda, and that was like <laughs> they're like, someone got my copy yeah, of Zelda with their <laughs> save file on it and everything. I'm just like delete. Let's start again. Oh yeah. man, I re- yeah, that's right. I remember that phase. The save files would be on the console. Yeah, the cartridges and they would. Get Pass around all sorts of crazy ways. Yep. Would you have rental? Did you guys have rental stores? Yeah, we had rentals. Yeah, yeah. I remember I so GoldenEye on Nintendo 64 was a huge one for me. So as I said, I skipped the Super Nintendo as a family, but we got a Nintendo 64 for Christmas one year. Right. And that was kind of like the peak of my, you know, my disposable income in regards to pocket money and mm-hmm. allowance was like enough to be able to stop buying from the porn store and get games as they came out. Um from the actual, you know, the, the local supermarket, not supermarket, sorry, like department store or whatever. And there was a game there that I that I was just like, what is this? James Bond? Oh, my God. And I got GoldenEye. And it was, of course, like so many kids my age, I guess, it changed my brain. Yeah. <laughs> and we just would play, like kids would come over. My parents were big entertainers. And so there would always be like kids just cycling through our place, like, you know, kids of some of their friends or whatever. And so we'd play GoldenEye. But I do remember passing around that cartridge. I remember I was trying to, you know, as you do when you're a kid, you know, like finishing the game, like 100%ing it or whatever. And I kept getting stuck on these particular, you know, uh, what was like time trials to unlock the cheats or to unlock the secret missions. And I worked at my grandfather's nursery and there was a kid there who was older than me. I would have been like... 11 or 12, 12 or 13. And he was like 19 and I gave it to him Yeah, and he took it home and like just 100% and gave me my cartridge <laughs> back. So I had all the cheats unlocked and all the secret levels yep. and everything. Everyone had the friend who was like, that, you know, like, yep. Tom's good at video games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. If you need someone to beat someone, they'll, yeah. they'll take care of it for you. Yeah. I remember when it's on that note, I remember when I was like, I would have been 19 knocking around with some mates and they would like, they played video games, but they weren't like a nerdy video game crowd. I never like, was I never sort of like had that sort of crew. And um, anyway, we were, we were like come back from the club one night and, you know, we we're into all sorts of mischief and we we're hanging around at the back of mate's place and the phone rings, my mobile 
and I answer it and they're all talking and I'm like, yeah, no, it's if you go, you go further right and then there's a med pack, but then past the med pack, there will be an enemy in there. And then if you get past that enemy, you, you, the shotgun is in the next room. All right, cool. Thanks. And I hang up the phone and I'm like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, it's a friend. I think it was like Silent Hill or Resident Evil. They wanted to know like where the shotgun was or something. And I, so I told them and they're like, man, you're, you're like a nerd undercover hanging out with the cool kids. <laughs> We're like, like smoking and drinking. Yeah, exactly. and what are you doing? Yeah, yeah like, totally. This is, this is bad. It kind of sums up my childhood. Like this, you know, this is this um, dirty secret that I had while I was desperately trying to be cool and hang out with all the cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So did your, you said your parents had computers. Like, yeah. So what happened? Uh, did you? So, it's an interesting one because they had, I remember they weren't tech literate, but we had a close family friend that set them up with their home work computers. And there was one, again, I'm not computer literate from that time, but it was like a the green and black screen. And I remember playing the living daylights on it. Well, you know, a Bond yeah. game was a side scrolling one. So I did play a couple of video games on that. But we weren't allowed to play on these computers because they were the work computers. And my parents being not really tech or computer literate, were kind of petrified that, you guys we would, would break it yeah break them or put viruses on them or whatever which was totally valid because of what I'm about <laughs> what I'm about to say but anyway this this family friend came over once and you know put some no doubt now thinking in in hindsight put some discs into the computer some floppy disks and pulled down some shareware of like Wolfenstein or Doom or whatever and put it onto the computer for me to just play like the shareware versions of these games and but I just as a kid just saw him in the DOS commands like just typing and pulling these things so I played those games to death but then in my child brain I thought the games were on the computer mm-hmm. and you just basically had to like Hit enter the, right the commands yeah. have the right codes yeah. to bring them out so I I think I bricked my parents' computer a couple of times because just, I was just typing <laughs> random things like into into the computer. Probably what like, an easy game is going to suddenly yeah, show up. Exactly. But it led, basically that was my entire childhood. It wasn't like I got to, you know, 16 or 17 and my parents were suddenly cool with it. They were like sort of game phobic when it came to the work PCs because of this like fear that games came with viruses or whatever. So the only real PC games that I played as a kid, I would have to go on these multi month long campaigns, like canvassing my parents essentially on. So I remember the ones that I put in the effort were was the Sims. Definitely. We got that one in the end. Age of Empires, we got mm. in a like a box of Kellogg's cornflakes or something like that, a box of what? cereal. You know, they like <laughs> gave out like the demo <laughs> disc. They, they, okay, yeah. wow. And right. then, um, and then, so that one, I was like, oh, can we use? Can we put? And she was like, okay. I think my mom was like, well, if it comes in a box of cereal, it's not going to break my computer. <laughs> so then I got the full version off of that, and then Half Life. But other than that, they're sort of like the only real PC games until I left home and I got my own PC that I played. It was all console gaming and as i mentioned nintendo 64 was the sort of where it really shut off for me i'd bought like 30 40 games and then then i got a playstation one and then i got an xbox what what type of games do you like the most what type of games do i like the most i think when i really it's funny that you asked me this because i was just asked by um alex spencer over at edge to write up my top 10 games oh, okay. because they're doing this special that's yep. going to be out by the time this podcast is out. And it was agonizing. But when I looked at it, the games that I really enjoy the most tend to be kind of light RPGs in a sense, like these Western RPGs that 
have they're almost action adventure, but they have these these RPG elements. And I think that there's something really interesting in video games that I've always that's carried on to being a video game designer and creator, obviously, which is this concept of abstraction and projection. You know, like games are this abstract simulation you know everything's abstracted the world is smaller or you know especially if you work in strategy like we do right, right. like Amelo, you've got a 200 foot rabbit standing on a settlement you know it's very abstract and then we project into it and i think the rpgs that are really tight well-defined experiences that allow the player to project into them as opposed to them being huge sprawling things like now in saying that i love the elder scrolls like i think number two on my list for you know this edge list or whatever of my top 10 was morrowind but at the top was ocarina of time and you know knight of the old republic really grabbed me and i was a big fable guy when that came out as well there's just something that it does by having this it's it, to me it feels like the perfect balance of like the curatorial sort of like authored hand but then the, right. There's the, a story going along, but there's a lot of space for you. Inside. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so that seems to, that seems to really sit well with me. But even as a kid, I played a lot of stuff. Like I wasn't just like the fighting game kid, or the like. I play. I remember playing like motocross racing games, and you know, like strategy games on console, and like, well, like you know, Pokemon Stadium or Pokemon Snap was one, like one of my favorite games on Nintendo 64. Yeah. Well, Did genres you... were still emerging at yeah. the time, right? Yeah, right? So like people didn't think of themselves as this type of gamer or that type of gamer. That's a yet. really good point. Yeah, that's, yeah. I Now that you say that, there's that never even came into my mind or I don't even remember having a, a conversation of that like at, this, at that point in time at all. You just kind of played what was coming out. I remember I would have, and again, the sort of Nintendo 64 was really like the renaissance for me. That's when I think I started to like play games with my eyes open, so to speak, you know, yep. really getting into the medium itself. And I would read, I would pour over this magazine called N64 Gamer. And it was just, it was kind of anything would take my, you know, take my fancy. The, there was a, <laughs> it was a period in my life, really tragic, where Harvest Moon 64 was coming out. And yep. I was reading about it and the sort of, the legend of this game being big in Japan and now they're bringing it into the West for Nintendo 64 and it just looks so cool. And I was like, wow, a farming game? You know, even as a kid, I'm like, that sounds dope and it's so crazy, like a farming game, but yeah, that would be fun. And But I was reading a British magazine mm -hmm. and it never got a release in Australia. Oh, <laughs> so no. I read all of the hype and the lead oh, up for no. this game that <laughs> just never, never came, came out. I'm like, the release date and I'm going to the stores and I'm like, no one's heard of it. And I'm like, am I crazy? I'm like, this game, I've just been reading about it for months. And yeah, sure enough, it never came yeah, out. Yeah, how did things work in Australia? Like, were you guys limited in a certain sense or were things like, you know, you got games later or you never got them or like how often did that happen? We got them later, definitely. Not usually the big, big releases, you know, like you'd a Zelda would drop in the same date or whatever. But we were a PAL territory, like PAL, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have NTSC. So America's in Japan where NTSC and Europe and Australia were PAL. Yeah. So we were part of the European distribution chain. Right. Funnily enough, because Europe is so much further so than far America away. Yep. for us. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to buy titles online or anything, you had to get the PAL versions and stuff. And that was obviously not a thing until much later. Uh, but there were some games that just didn't come out. Like they just didn't get PAL releases. Like I remember there was, or like, sorry, they would get a PAL release, but they wouldn't ship to Australia. It's such a small market, you know, we're very much into games. We're very much a games enthusiast. But I mean, even now, I think we're 5% of the global market, right? Right. Which is not insignificant, but, you know, when you're shipping games on putting them on a, on a, boats and sending them yeah. to the other side of the would world. Would there be like end. import stores where people yeah. would actually take the, it probably cost a lot. But. Yeah, there would be before sort of, so we had EB Games, which is sort of our GameStop, I guess. 
And um, that was, before that came along, it was all independent video game stores. And those folks would really like, you know, they would be able to source things for you or whatever, or they would have, you know, crazy, you know, like outlier games in there. There was one I remember, Resident Evil 2. I didn't have a PlayStation, but I had a Nintendo 64. And years after its release on PlayStation, Resident Evil 2 got a release on Nintendo 64. And so I was like, this is amazing. And I went to buy it, but you couldn't get it anywhere. And I was like, oh, what? It's not being released in Australia. But then I found out that for some reason, because they were going to release it in Australia and then they pulled the shipment or they pulled the release. But for some reason, because I think it was because Blockbuster was an American company. Mm -hmm. They had a different distribution chain than like almost everyone else. So the only place in Australia you could get Resident Evil 2 on Nintendo 64 was Blockbuster. And of course they realized that. So they jacked up the price. I remember being like 13 years old, paying 120 bucks for a version of like Resident, Resident Evil 2. But I got, I got my money's worth. So there was some, there was some weird quirks like that for sure. And you know, things had strange names. You're always reading these magazines about a game, but it would have a different name in Australia when it got released or something like that. But yeah, for the, for the majority, there's always been a large game centric community in Australia mm. and even development. Like it's been, you know, the Hobbit was releasing the old text adventure was a game out of Melbourne. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. We have, we have a studio called, um, we had a studio called Beam that then was called Atari Melbourne House. And so many great games went through that. So there was. Are they mostly from Melbourne? Not uh, like in, like that's, that's kind of the biggest hub in Australia. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. About 50% of game developers in Australia are in Victoria. And so the state of, state that Melbourne's within. Um, and obviously a lot of those are in the, the Melbourne metro area. Yeah. But yeah, it's very much so. And that's very much because of these older studios. But there was, there were big studios like. Chrome, which had hundreds of folks, which was in, up in Queensland, um, farther in the northeast of Australia, one of the northeastern states. But a lot of the reason why Melbourne has such a vibrant and such a strong video game community is because, or developer community, is because there's a government body called Vic Screen that's mm. been funding video games yep. since for 25 years or something now. And yep. they just provide <laughs> just grants, you know. Yep. And they even just recently announced a 15% tax rebate. So on top of the 30% that you can get federally in Australia now, you can also get 15% on top of that. Yep. So it's just a, the support yeah, for their, video games is wild. I see the little logo when I load yeah. up a, <laughs> yeah. a uh, League of Geeks game. Yep, yep. They, uh, yeah, that's it. you got to put their logo in the game. That's the one thing. They're very specific about that, which yeah. is fair. You know, they're giving you a bunch of cash. But, yeah, if you boot up Cult of the Lamb or The Forgotten City or, yep. you know, Armello, it'll have that, it'll have that fixed screen logo yeah. there. So when you were a 16-year-old Trent, mm -hmm. did you have any idea that there were humans making video games in Melbourne? Not, not a clue. And it's funny that you say that because that's kind of like the literal story of how I got into games is that I just, I had no idea that basically when I was a kid, some, the, again, this guy who was the family tech guy, you know, yep. the family friend, um, I went to work with him one day. I think he was babysitting me or whatever. And he had, he had an IT company. And so I was pulling around one of the computers. And I think I said something about making games or something. And he was like, oh, to make games, you need to know how to program. And I was like, well, what's that? And through the conversation, he basically gave me this vision of these maths nerds, you know, who like, that's like these coding wizards. And, yep. I, and I just like, I never identified with that. I was a kid. I loved writing and storytelling. Like English was really my thing, but not really arithmetic or math. And so I was like, okay, well, that's not me as a kid. You know, you just don't identify with something. You just go, okay, well, that's not me. And then because I didn't have the PC gaming 
childhood. I never had the modding right. access or anything like I that. See I see that's like a missing chunk here that could have yeah. made things have been very different. Totally, yeah. totally. And like, I mean, the only thing I can remember doing in that sort of sense was I filtered around a bit with like custom maps or campaign makers in Age of Empires. But that was it. I had no idea that there were modding communities online or whatever. You know, you talk to people like, Brendan Chung from Blendo Games, and it's like it's like their their whole existence, you know, sort of as yep. a child playing games. Yeah, because you you stuff. came in an age during a certain like golden era. Yeah. for like PC development. Yeah, know, especially as... that that Nintendo seal of quality that I had, where it's just you get it in a box, you don't touch it. It just is like the perfect little experience. I had no idea that, like you say, this golden era of PC gaming was happening just like in the in the house next door with some for some other kid. Yeah, and ironically, this is like the first era for like PC gaming where it didn't matter where you lived to yeah. some extent. Right? Yeah, like, totally. Um, so, and yeah. so what happened was I was, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, we're, we hear like doing stuff for GDC and it was actually a GDC talk when I was about 19 that I got a hold of somehow. Really? I think a friend shared it with me. Yeah. And it was. What, what year would this be? Okay. This would be, I, don't know, I don't, oh God, I don't know. Two, early it, 2000s, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. And it was a talk that Cliff Blazinski had done uh -huh. called Dissecting Interactive Design. Okay. Um, it was kind of like a, you know, we'd call it like a grand design talk now. Yep. And um, yeah, it would have been like 19 or 20, 19, I reckon. And I may have been at that talk. Yeah. It's <laughs> <That's> definitely <laughs> possible. And um, I remember thinking like, this guy is not some crazy, like weird, like maths nerd, you know, like this is just like a, like a, normal guy, like just talking, he's cracking jokes and blah, blah, blah. And, and of course I had this completely distorted vision of what the industry was or who made games and everything um, from like one conversation when I was nine or something. And th then quit. Sorry if I could no, go for just it. a yeah. second. This is like, how did it like, how did the GGC lecture make its way to you? pre-YouTube days like yeah. in Australia to a 19-year-old. Like. I remember it was an MP4 file and okay. I think it was via gamasutra.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, well, so I think okay, so this means that you were, I mean, you were curious enough to know what Gama Sutra was. Exactly. So when you were a teenager, like what, what role did like video games play in your life? Like how did you think of them? Yeah. I, I knew that there was, I just essentially thought of them, I guess a parallel would be like a cinemaphile. Sure. Like a, like a, a, not just like a movie buff or whatever, but like someone who is deeply into cinema and the art form. And, and if you I cared enough about it, like you would say like, this is my primary interest. Absolutely. Like okay. 100%. I think the only things I did as a kid was play video games, skateboard. I did a bit of Taekwondo and I watched movies like that's it. And so it was video games and film. I was a film buff as well. And actually I was studying again because I didn't think that video games was a possibility. Yeah. They came off a magic conveyor belt, you know, um, I was studying professional writing and editing to become a film writer and director. Okay. In college. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm doing that. And, but my mate who I was studying with happened to go to high school with me and we were both doing the same, ended up doing the same course in college. And we were both like video game nutcases. Like we loved it. And in school, that was like our bond in high school. We didn't really hang out in the same crew, but we were super tight. We had some classes together. And whenever we did, we would just talk about the latest games and just go deep, you know, yep. talk for hours about that stuff. And we played a and bunch of games together. Did you not have, you didn't have enough other friends? I mean, like no. other friends who were into it. Is that kind no, of part, not really. part of the reason? And, you know, we're getting to the time now in the early 2000s where it's not like, it's not 
<laughs> it's not like some shameful hobby yep. or something. It's right. not like a super nerdy thing that people do. Like kids played them, but there was a difference between like, you know, playing a video game every now and then and having a console in your house to like being into it to the degree. Like You know who John Carmack is. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was finding out about some of this stuff, like how the industry worked and, you know, sort of getting into it and obviously reading. I think I was just in the period of diving, like coming out of the magazines that were talking more about like hype or about, about the games and previewing yep. them and more about the actual process of game making and the industry. And so right after that talk, there was something else that I found that was, I can't remember who it was, but it was another little video or an article that was talking about ways to become a video game designer. Mm -hmm. And there was basically two main paths that they highlighted because at this point in time, there weren't really colleges in Australia teaching games or whatever. And they weren't, you know, worth their weight at all. And it wasn't really a way to make your own games as well, unless you're rolling your own engine or something like that, you know? And the ways that they mentioned was one was you can get in through QA that a lot of game designers come from QA. So if you get a job testing in at a studio that you could do that. And then the other one was that you could get a job via writing. And so you could be like a games journalist and then maybe get in through that. And that kind of just like lit something on fire in my brain. The combination of those two things of um, seeing like hearing this talk, and hearing about game design and hearing someone talk about game design. And I had been unknowingly been thinking about games in that way for a long time already, like been thinking like a game designer or critically about video games. So to then have this whole hour long talk where I'm like, yes, yes. yes <laughs> okay, cool. And it's like downloading that into my brain and then followed in fast succession by this, this thing giving me basically, you know, two ways to get in. And one of them was like what I was doing right now. I was like, okay, I want to be a video games journalist so that I could get into game yep. development and be a game designer. And yep. so then I had the path and I had the objective. And it was essentially like, you know, game dev tycoon when you're like crew working really fast and they're on fire. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Right, right. And we, and I had, so the story of how I got into games was I had this um, professor as that taught my story structure course, I think it was, and he was the most the one most wonderfully cliche stereotypical like tortured writer, you know, okay. like kind of alcoholic, like brilliant <laughs> creative who would like show up to share string with the of class. bad relationships. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, yeah, it was like Charlie Bukowski was my like um, you know <laughs> professor or something. Anyway, he had had some blow up with the faculty of the school or something, and so he he comes in all flustered one day and he has goes on this little rant, and then at the end he says, you know what, fuck it, don't worry about the curriculum. If you can get published, I'll pass you. <laughs> and obviously to, I think the vast majority of students in the class, they were terrified. They were like, what? Like mortified at this new, like fire from the hip pivot on the curriculum. But for me, I was like challenge accepted. Mm -hmm. And so I think like a few days later on a coffee high, I was at the local shopping mall and I saw that, you know, Halo 2 or Halo, I can't remember, Halo 3 was going to be released, one of them. And I just called the local paper and I said, hi. Um, I'm a video games journalist and um, I'm going <laughs> Local to- Local paper, does mean like, like the Melbourne newspaper? No, no, not no, like, okay. I mean like the suburb, the county newspaper okay. kind of thing, right? Because okay. I lived in, so there's in Melbourne, you've got the CBD, which is like the sort of the grid of your, you know, your city streets. Then you've got the inner city suburbs. And then the Melbourne metro area is a sprawl like LA sure. or Tokyo. It's okay. huge. And so I lived in a Southeastern suburb, you know, very much suburbia. And um, 
I said, I'm a video games journalist. Yes, I was just exactly. I'm a video games journalist, <laughs> and I'm going right. to cover. Yeah, I'm going to cover <laughs> the Halo to midnight launch at this, you know, this suburban um, uh, shopping mall. Yeah, and. They were like, okay, okay wait, who are you? <laughs> they were like, let us put, I'll put you through to tech. And so they put me on hold and this lovely guy answered, Sean and Guan, so shout out to him because he knew from the moment that he started talking to me that I was not a video game journalist. I'm sure that I was just some kid, but he gave me, he was like, okay, cool. Yeah, look, I was going to, I've got to go down and pick up my copy anyway. So I'll meet you there and we'll chat to some people. And so I was like, okay. And I was like buzzing. I'm like, oh my God. All right. Now I've got to, you know, <laughs> now I've got to walk the walk. And so I, I meet him down there. And again, I think confirmed even more that I wasn't who I said I was. Cause again, I was some kid, like some 18 year old kid or 19. And, um, but on the way there, a couple of my mates actually got into a car accident. Hmm. And so then I ended up covering that and putting like, everyone was okay, but I put a humorous spin on, you know, the fact that like, cause they were like, are the Xboxes okay? All right. Yep. Yeah, we got to <laughs> go. We're going to go to the midnight launch of Halo. And then, you know, cause they were part of the crew that we were, you know, plugging all our Xboxes together to land Halo that night. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up getting two pieces published in the paper that week. It was the front page story of the video game crash and the big midnight launch. And then I wrote the tech column. He like gave me his tech column for the week. And so I walk into class the next week and I like put the paper down on the table and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, you said, you know, you said get published. And he like looks at it and I point to my name and he looks <laughs> and then I, and he's like, kind of goes to say something. And I, then I point, turn the pages to the column and I point to that. And he just looks at me and I'll never forget it. He goes, what are you doing here? And I said, you, what? You told us to get published. Like, and he's like, no, no, no. He was Trent. The entire purpose of this course is to teach you how to write so that you can get published. Right. And you just, I gave you this task. No one took me seriously and you went and got published twice in like one week. He's like, you shouldn't be here. Right. He's like, you should just be doing this. And so I quit like the next day. And, you know, then I just... Mom and Dad. Journalism. Yeah, exactly. I'm <laughs> doing video my, game my journalism. teacher told me I should quit college and uh, be a video game journalist. Yeah, and so then I did a little stint in video games journalism, which I hope no one ever uncovers my writings because <laughs> I'm sure they're deeply embarrassing. Um, but where, it was, where was this at? It was but like I was doing, so again, the sort of stepping stone of like leveraging, you know, sort of fake it till you like, make it. Like I, I had to, I've been in this. Exactly, yeah. I, I wrote for the local papers and then I got like a gig doing like a, um, like a community radio gig, like show. So I would basically write um, once a week, I would do two, two segments that were pre-recorded. And then I like won some like little awards at the radio station for that. So then I was like, I have an award-winning radio sta- radio show. And then I got a, actually a gig for the state paper and writing for the paper in their like weekend magazine. And I had a, a column in there. And then I did some stuff for some different mastheads and everything. And then I was covering the Australian Game Developers Conference at the time, which was called Game Connect Asia Pacific. And I was there sort of, you know, covering the show. And one night just having some drinks, I got into this big drunken rant about like GoldenEye. I can't even remember what it was about, but it was about the design of GoldenEye. And I was talking to these, this crew from this studio called Taurus Games in Melbourne. And we we're just having a great time. And then two weeks later, I just get a call at home and they were like, hey, we, um, we have a video game uh, that, that we've just, you know, got the, got the project for and it requires a bunch of writing and we don't have a writer designer. Do you want to come in and interview? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I went in and interviewed and 
I got the gig and that's how it started. And I think it was about a year after I'd started my sort of stint or nine months to a year after I sort of decided that I wanted to get into games. Wow. So you were 20 and yeah. you suddenly had a job as a games writer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also the studio that I was at, I remember the first day, the head of head of production, Kevin, said to me, how many games do you think we have in the building? And I was like, two or three? And he's like, seven. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, you're on these three. I was like, all right. So I was immediately, like I was on my probation, but three months after that, I was not a junior designer anymore because I come in and I, I did quite well. Um, but I was like lead designer on a Monster, a monster Jam game. Okay. <laughs> monster Jam Urban Assault. And then I was also, there was another game that was like a, like a veterinary sort of game. You know, the Wii had those games where you oh, could wow. like, you know, a lot yeah. of mini game based games. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I, we were working in the sort of Nintendo DS. I mean, PS2. what did you, what did you start off working on? Like what was the very first thing they gave you? The first thing that I got, the first day that I worked there, I was editing the story for a game called Zoo Hospital, which was pretty much done, but I just came through and did a bunch of edits to the story and the structure and the writing and stuff like that um, And the, as they were wrapping that up. And then immediately I was working on a couple of pitches that they had going out the door because we were a third-party studio. So this studio, Taurus Games, when I got there, was about 60 people, but they'd been around for 10 or so years already. And they were at one point the most prolific independent game developer in the world. And they were Nintendo's sort of like top recommended studio. And they were just a white label game development house. Was was Alex Hutchinson there? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Alex was, Alex Hutchinson I, was yeah, two I, people I, before me. Yeah. So. I mean, I was on the sport team with him. He's, yeah. he's a good friend. And uh, I interviewed him and I remember him talking about this Australian company he worked for that would just spit out these it was insane. DS games and whatever. And this, it was just like a crazy treadmill um, I'm not like kidding the, you. We would make like a DS game in like a number of weeks. Yeah. Like you would, we'd get the RFP. It'd be like, okay, we're making Carmageddon on DS. And then it'd be out the door in four or five weeks. Yeah. They had a They had a proprietary tool. I think it was called like Sprite Boy or something like that, that just enabled them to, because it was all their own tech. They rolled their own stuff. I think the only thing we used was maybe RenderWare. I'm not even sure, but obviously not on the DS. But um, this proprietary engine could... Basically, it was like, you know, when Unity came out, Unity's big thing was the engine for any platform, like press yeah. a button, mm-hmm. that we already had that. And so that was one of Taurus's strengths, was a publisher could be like, we want Monster Jam, which, and this is a true story, but we want it on Xbox 360, the original Xbox, PS2, and the Nintendo Wii, and the DS. And our CEO, wow. Bill, would just be like, no problem. And then give us the task of doing that. And so, yeah, we just pumped out these games. And it was actually the no, Game no. Game Boy Advance that was their primary, like, when they really hit their stride because they could just pump them out so fast. Okay. Now, would would the, would were these all ports or were they being no. developed? They're developed from scratch, but yeah. you guys you guys could handle all of the platforms. Yeah. That's, that's what you're doing? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we'd get, I mean, Monster Jam, Urban Assault, we... We got that in and you just, I remember like I would be told as a designer about the game and people were already making assets, you know, like they were modeling Gravedigger or something like that, you know, over two rows down in the building. Like we just moved so fast. And I think we made a game, We I was like in charge of like the Scooby-Doo license kind of like in an interactive sense for a few years there because like the only things that Warner Brothers were doing with it was like video game wise was at Taurus and we put out two big Scooby-Doo games um, and my business partner, Blake, he was he was actually the one that hired me. He was lead designer um, at at Taurus Games at the time. And so he led the first one and I led the, he led the first Scooby game, I led the second one. But I mean, you just kind of, 
Warner Brothers would say, we want Lego Star Wars, but with the Scooby-Doo license, but you yep. play as Mystery Inc. And then you, it's just like, okay, you okay. got the brief and we just go. <laughs> this, this, this is the design document. Yeah. That, that yeah. one sentence, that was, that, that's it. Exactly. Right. And like there would be documentation and we would write, and but you got so good at writing design documentation very rapidly, very fast and farming pages out to the people who needed it and yeah. doing it in the right order. No, that's, that's interesting because that's like, you know, you're, you know, you're not a, coder right yeah, so your yeah. your primary job must have just been writing stuff for people to implement right yeah, absolutely and yeah. especially in that environment there were no real designer friendly tools right like i'm not a programmer by any means but like i did when i got the job at taurus i did like a little 10 week sort of course that i sort of just did from online but enough to you know get some stuff rendering on screen and moving around so that i could talk to programmers essentially like right. the basic it was almost like um you know when you travel and you learn just the basics of the language <laughs> right, to be able to yeah. get by yeah i did that and then every the but like if i ever wanted to do anything in the game it was kind of like i had to do some scripting you know in the like the local proprietary you know, scripting language and stuff. And other than that, it was just everyone else was implementing things. You know, design was very much design. We were not in the tools because you had to like be coding or, you know, um, maybe some, maybe some, even the level design was in Maya and stuff. It was, it was pretty. So you, so your design documentation was not theoretical, no. something that was going to sit on the hard drive and forget about yeah. You were, you were writing stuff yeah. that people were implementing. What were yeah, these briefs. games, what were these games like? <laughs> Do you mean in regards to genre? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like, I yeah, mean, the okay. first, the first one. Okay, so you said Monster Jam was the first one you were. The like, first one was Zoo Zoo Hospital, which zoo is you know you're overlooking right. this this map of a zoo, and yeah. you know then all of a sudden there'd be this icon that pops up that the chimpanzee is sick. So then you go in, and then it's like a series of mini games, and you have the Wii remote that you're diagnosing, and you know doing the laser scalpel, opening it up, and yeah, that was the first one. Then I was on Monster, a couple of Monster Jam games. Um, and there were weird ones in between too, because again, like <laughs> Bill, God bless him, the CEO, who's like a, he was like a legendary programmer himself from Beam that yeah, I think he worked on The Hobbit. Right. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. He, um, he would just like say yes to everything. And like, then you just like go, oh, okay. You know, sort of already got holding seven things and another one's piled on top. Um, so every now and then there'd be a random one. I remember doing a flash game for an online um portal for the local city council to teach kids recycling so like we went down to the recycling plant learned yeah. the whole thing then designed the mini games and everything and that was like you know like a two-month turnaround or something like that just a small project that we did there were some defense i never worked on them but there were some defense projects in the in the building and wow. stuff as well but the, the biz dev people there must be like yeah well you know what <laughs> i <laughs> i want to say like God bless them, but it actually wasn't their business development acumen. It was the time. Like, it, it was really a veritable golden age for video games in Australia because we, first of all, we didn't want any of the credit or need any of it. It was just white label. Our yep. logo wasn't even on the box or anything, yep. you know, half the time. Um, we were 50 cents on the dollar at that point sure. in time, on the US dollar. We worked through the night because of the time zones and we were like one of, so essentially we were an English speaking service country. Yeah. Um, and, but we had this decades long history of, of development and in Victoria, or sorry, in, in Australia as well. And so basically Bill, the CEO would just go to E3 or GDC where he would do his business and slide this. It was, it was kind of like this mad, a madman sort of like mind map of, um, of like the, it was like the Taurus logo in the middle. And then it would have like the, 
the platforms that we've worked on and the yep. licenses that we've done. And they would just look at this and, you know, it would be like, they used to be called Activision Value and then they changed their name to Activision Minneapolis, but they were like, they're kids and family division. And they just look at it and they go, okay, yep, cool. What do we got? And they'd reach into the barrel and they'd be like, all right, uh, <laughs> Nicktoons, here you go. You can yeah, make yeah, the yeah. Nicktoons game, you know? Um, I remember doing pitches for Chuck E. Cheese and like anything would come down the pipe. There'd be someone, at, I remember Paramount at one point opened up all of their... They're, they wanted to look into their games division and license, or they wanted to look into their licenses and see what could. So they just farmed out a bunch of stuff to people around the world. And so all of a sudden you're doing pitches on weird things, but it was kind of just like, it was shooting fish in a barrel getting projects back then. Sure. Um, and we would, and because we would deliver, I remember pitching a project, like, you know, we're having a meeting with someone from Sega at one point and, um, or it might not have been Sega, it was a big publisher. I can't remember, but they, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm this young, hungry designer, really keen on my craft. And I'm like, this game's going to Metacritic at like, you know, 80 above. Like it's going to be the, and the guy was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> He's like, I don't want that. And I, I was like, what? He's like, I want a six. He's like, make me a six. <laughs> wow. And I, yeah. And there's I was like. There's a man who understands his place in the world. Yeah, exactly. He goes, if I get a six, it'll sell. It won't cost me won't so cost much me to make. Much, yeah. And I can put it in the bargain bin in a year and we'll get another sales spike. He's like, do not make me anything higher than a six. And I was like, yes, sir. You got it. That's funny. That was, it kind of leads me into a question I was trying to figure out how to ask, which is like, what did you think about like your position right now? You're yeah. making some of that you're making shovelware, yeah, right? No, we, yeah, know? we were to some degree, but it was... So I remember a question that I got to Vaughn Marshall, who was the lead designer, but it was outgoing when I started here. So it was him and Blake that interviewed me in my first interview. And he said to me, he goes, what would you say if I told you that we were making a Barbie game? And I said, I remember my answer. I said, well, I guess it would just be pretty embarrassing when I rock up to, you know, the, che the, the checker at Kmart and... Um, or oh, sorry, the cashier at Kmart and I have like nine Barbie dolls under my under my arms. <laughs> and he said, good answer. <laughs> and it kind of set me up for what the studio was in a sense, which is like no one who wanted to do like make the next Halo or work on the big licenses lasted there. They cut their yep. teeth a bit and then the brain drain to the States or the UK occurred and they would go overseas. Um, but for those of us, like I've always felt that design is answering a set of questions within a set of constraints, right? Like... And so for me, it didn't matter if it was Zoo Hospital or Monster Jam or a Chuck E. Cheese pitch or a Barbie game. The process of design was and working with these people and the insane deadlines that we had because we only ever had a third of the money, a third of the time that we should have had. Uh, and there were just so many talented people around me. I think probably still to this day, some of the most talented people I've ever worked with in video games were at that place, you know, and they've gone on to do amazing things like Alex and other folks, you know, from the, from Taurus, all seated all around the world in amazing jobs and have worked on amazing games. And so I think for some people, it was kind of, kind of hard, you know, like making these, these little games that kind of never really came, came out too well, but I mean, some of them did, you mm -hmm. know, and I think the joy that we had was that because there was no, at that point in time, like interacting with your community or anything like right. that, there was no fanfare really for a lot of developers. So we would do gold master and then we would put it in an envelope and send it to America. And then we'd be already into the next project, yeah. you know? So we would, the victories were amongst ourselves and as a team. And, and I do remember at the time we kind of felt a little bit bad that, or a little bit hard done by that there was a guy there, absolute guru of a programmer. And he did like, 
he wrote a new graphics renderer over the weekend one time, you know, and the stuff that we were doing on the PlayStation 2 was just unheard of. But because the PlayStation 3 was out, God of War was coming out yeah. and everything, like, no one cares. No one's looking at you and your little achievements on Scooby-Doo or whatever, right. right? Even though there's still, like, 100 million PlayStation 2s actively yeah. being played at the time, right? Yeah. But, like, yeah. Exactly. But we, so we, we really, really enjoyed working together and the craft. And I think it was that we were kind of united by, like, this common threat or this common enemy of the timelines and the and the lack of budget and sort of the challenge of it. And the people who were at Taurus Games, like we were, the management was quite hands-off mm. uh, and we were very much just kind of like left to our own devices to just get these things over the How line. How much were you working? Uh, an insane amount. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were like, it wasn't crazy all the time, but yeah, there was definitely, it was the big, big crunch days for sure. Like yeah. I remember one point rocking up to the studio and the, the like HR slash finance woman, like running out into the car park because she saw me on the on the surveillance on the CCTV and she's like, no, 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 you can't come in. Like, because legally you haven't been out of the studio for long enough. You know, like I worked till like, <laughs> I worked till like 5am and then I like came back in at 9am to start the day and she's like, no, 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 wow. you need to. So I went and like went to sleep in my car and for another three hours and came back in. Well, that definitely improved your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But it, that's an interesting law. Yeah. It was Boy. wild, but you know, and I like, obviously it's, um, it's a terrible thing to be working that much. And I don't think we understood like, you know, how, how bad it was or anything, but at the time, I was a young whippersnapper and I was just beside myself that I could be making these games and you're shipping so often, like compared to the sort of games that we're making now that yeah. you were, you were really, really into what you were doing yeah. and it didn't, it didn't, it didn't bother you. It didn't. It's didn't, interesting yeah. because in the, in the indie community right now, it seems like there's a kind of a discourse going mm-hmm. on about like, you should be making a lot of little games yeah. to start yeah. off your career. Yeah. Like I see a lot of veterans starting to tell, you know, talking about this a lot to yeah. like, you know, that, you know, new, new developers know that like, Hey, don't, don't start off with some four or five year project. Yeah. Your magnum opus right. is game one. Yeah. And, and beyond that, like, you know, if you're just a, you know, a brand new developer, you've got a couple of friends, you're going to mm-hmm. make something. The first game you're going to make, like no one's going to pay attention to. Yeah. And if it's good, it's only if you take pride in it yourself, yeah. which is kind of, it's, it's weird because it's kind of pretty similar to where mm-hmm. you, how you actually started, yeah. right? Like yeah. you were pumping out multiple games a year. Yeah. You weren't really going to get feedback. Like it's not, you mm-hmm. weren't, <laughs> you weren't trying to get an eight, you know, like, <laughs> exactly. but, you know, obviously you were trying to do a good job. Yeah. Right. And you know, that you were learning from that. Right. Yeah. I don't think there is any better video game school than going through the pitch to ship cycle as much as you can. And that was what Taurus did. And that was why people who came out of Taurus were so good at making games like Alex Hutchinson, who, so he let, you know, you, we've, you've had him on the podcast before, you know, the story he went and did Sims 2 at Maxis and you worked together on Spore. And then he went to, you know, I think it was like WB Montreal or EA Montreal. Well, he did Army of Two. Army of Two. EA, and, and then, yeah, then he went to uh, Montreal for yep. um, Ubi Montreal for AC3 and then Far Cry 4 and stuff. And, but the thing, and then now with his new studio is like, he's got obviously yep. got his business partner and production partner read but the the common theme that you see through that is that like he executes yep. you know like alex makes good games like great games but you know he he may not be the best video game designer in the world sorry hacho <laughs> <laughs> but um but like he executes oh, and yeah. you know like that's that's something that we all i'm the same i don't make the best video games in the world but like we we can execute you know i remember when we were kicking off our mellow and telling people that like 
you know, this game's going to happen. Like, if you get on board, like, we're going to get this game out the door and it's going to happen because we have these people who, who are just used to shipping games. And I fully agree. I 100% agree with the idea or the philosophy that to make great games, to learn how to make great games, you should make as many games as possible, as small as possible, as rapidly as possible. And to the point where if I like quit League of Geeks tomorrow and I wanted to go and do it all again, or make, let's say I wanted to be a solo developer, I would just do game a week for a year. And then I would do game a month for another year and then see what I had in year three or something. Uh, I'm on the program advisory committee for an, a university in Melbourne called RMIT. And it's like, Australia's sort of foremost technology um, university and design. And they have a games course there. It's one of the best in the world, actually. And when we were talking about it, the, the, the faculty there had this great idea. Actually, one of the crew um, is from the House House crew, Michael um, Michael McMasters. He worked um, House House and Untitled Goose Game and then Doug Wilson from um, Dicuta mm-hmm. Fabrique. Um, but they ran a studio module as part of that course where... It is literally just the Game of Week challenge. So the students, when they get into their final year, I think it's final year if I'm remembering correctly, they just make a Game of Week and they have to ship a Game of Week to like the local intranet or something. It's got to have like a menu or whatever. And they just they just found that the best way to teach kids how to essentially like express themselves through the medium of video games to be able to close this thing out, to understand the loop of not just a game but a product um, was to ship them to move them through the cycle. And they won actually like international, I don't know what they are, obviously it's a whole other world, but like these academic, like international education awards for the core structure. And they've gone on to create some incredible students, you know, some of which we've hired. But I think, I just don't think there's any, any better way to learn how to make games, you know? And I think that some, you know, in the AAA community, you can really, you can, you can have worked on Diablo 4 and, you know, Doom Eternal and, you know, what, I don't know why I'm naming hell games <laughs> or whatever. You work on these huge games, but you only spend, you know, like two years on them. You don't, act, you weren't there at the start. You weren't there at the end. And sure, it's not like not taking that away from anyone. You gain a bunch of experience, but there really is something to be said for these folks who are like there from the start to the end. You see the whole cycle. And the irony is that I strongly believe it doesn't need to be a triple A six year, seven year video yeah. game. It can be ten games that you finish in a yeah. year and it will you will because the the strongest lessons are really the ones that like are the hardest to learn and come the hardest, which is, you know, that that thing that you thought was the most important thing for the game actually wasn't when you're looking back on it. Um, getting into the cycle of shipping with your team and trusting people in the moment or not, you know, not sacrificing your personal relationships over some bullshit like UI question or something. Like just actually what is what is important to a video game in regards to like as a product, I think is you can only learn that through the pitch to ship cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I remember someone, someone from Bethesda recently was talking about how the next uh, the next Elder Scrolls thing is still like five years away yeah, yeah. and they've been working on it for five plus years. Yeah. And I'm like, there are probably people who join, will have joined the company, worked there for seven years and then left, yep. you know, without, you know, after the game started and before it shipped. And it's yeah. just like that, you know, that was like my entire time at Fraxis, right? Like yep. it's like unimaginable. It's crazy. Like, like it's being wild. Being on these type of projects or, I, for someone new. I think I shipped like including all the small ones, like, you know, the video game for the Manningham City City Council about recycling for kids or whatever. I think I shipped 10 games in three years and across maybe 15 different SKUs or something like that. Like yeah. at, it, just at the time when I was in Taurus and to have that, 
like the slingshot boost that you get off that in regards to, you know, decisions you can make in the trenches or wisdom of like how to approach things is, is just unparalleled, I reckon. And so I used to have this big template email that when pe- people would email me and they're like, how do I get into games? And I'd be like, well, there are universities and blah, 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 or you could apply. And this is how to best get your portfolio set up. I mean, this long email that I just go, yep, fill in and, you know, send out. But now I just say, just make video games, go on a YouTube, download some tutorials, get unity or unreal and just make a game a week like right. that's the best way to learn how to make video games because the irony is if you go to rmit in melbourne that's just what they're going to do anyway it's, <laughs> it's on rails and you'll have right. all these fantastic people teaching you how to do it but like you know one of the best video game courses in the world is even like hey this is this is the way to do it yep yeah so 10 games in three years yeah i mean is there one or two of them that's worth talking about that like just to like yeah i'm just thinking about like you know, young Trent, like, you, know, you want to do a good job. So what's yeah. one of the good example of one that was like a challenge and like you, you know, you came up with an interesting solution yeah. for and like, you know, let you f- feel like you were exer- exercising your, you know, design chops. Yeah. It's easily the Scooby-Doo games. Okay. And it's so funny because when we talk about them, like whenever I mention it at League of Geeks, everyone like rolls their eyes. All the, all the, <laughs> no, all the no, younger the Scooby-Doo crew. Okay, Scooby, yeah, great. Another Scooby-Doo story. And because Ty, Blake, and I, also my three business partners, me okay. and my two business partners, we all worked um, okay. together at Taurus. We all worked on Scooby. So that was that was the crucible. <laughs> yeah, Scooby was exactly our rite of passage. Um, but we had two games. And so they were on like DS, Wii, PlayStation 2, like, you know, all these different platforms we were doing all the SKUs and everything um and interestingly Blake uh my business partner who was the lead designer at the time at Taurus Games had come from another studio that had done a bunch of like kids action adventure platformer stuff he'd worked on a bunch of Nicktoons games and everything for another excuse me another studio in Melbourne and so when he came across and then they got this RFP um, RFP to do this thing he was kind of like the guy at the studio who was like, I know how to do this. Like, sort of follow me, everyone. We can we can do this. And we pulled together this game that was, if you imagine Lego Star Wars, like the drop-in, drop-out co-op, the elevated camera, um, but it's Mystery Inc., you know? So you got Scooby, Shaggy, Velma and everything, and it's full, like, there are stories. So there are these self-contained, so there's, like, a hub structure to it where you're basically going off um, was there a hub structure to the first one? Anyway, so you let's, I don't think there was in the first one, actually. The first one is sort of like four acts, but they're like these big, large worlds that you sort of like go and platform through and everything. And then you uncover a mystery and there were, there were cut scenes and, and it was the whole sort of Scooby-Doo arc and they would do four, but there was like a meta arc underneath the whole thing. So that's when I came on and was writing all of that stuff. And I, it was so amazing. There was a guy called, um, my script supervisor was a guy by the name of Ed Sharlak who was in his 80s and one of these like ancient Jewish like Hollywood writers, you know, that had been like, (laughs) he wrote like The Odd Couple and Mork and Mindy and like Scooby-Doo, loveliest guy. He wrote for Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he was the guy, right? And he was my script supervisor, but I don't think he was ready for the output. So he created this tool at Taurus. Again, they were so talented, the tools and tech team there. Basically where I could like write in Excel or access the database or whatever and press this button and it would output it to like a movie script format. So we had that for our voice actors and also for it. And it was 400 pages by the end (laughs) because you could drop in, drop out co-op. So I had to write lines for Daphne and then the same line for Fred in case, you know, Fred was there instead of Daphne or whatever. And, um, and I remember when I got the script back from Ed, it was like, 
it was there was like the first 20 pages were all marked up and really great advice and then it kind of thinned out and then there was nothing for about 300 pages and then at the end like just some more and i was like okay, i made yeah. it all the way yeah, through exactly like, uh-huh. yeah yeah so he cut his check and you know moved on but which i don't blame him for at all um, but anyway, so we're, we're working on this game and it was, you know, advice one. for people working on IP. If you want to sneak some weird stuff in, <laughs> yeah. stick it in, in like in the two middle thirds, three, yeah, exactly. like, you know. <laughs> page 220, yeah, it'll fly <laughs> right by them. Um, but interestingly enough, just funny, like for our, our Scooby-Doo fans out there, like the funniest stuff that like, cause I was like, I put in things in there about, even though it's a kid's game, you know, you put the jokes in there for the adults and stuff, things about like, um, Daphne and Fred kind of having a thing for each other. And he was like, Daphne and Fred are not romantically involved and wow. never were. And I was like, okay, mister, like, we'll take it from here. Thank you very much. You Mr. don't know about fan fiction, <laughs> yeah, do you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think you don't know about Scooby-Doo, sir. Um, so, but yeah, it was really, it was actually amazing. It was a real joy to work with him. I was very privileged. Uh, and, Anyway, so we're working on this game and it was a big one for the studio too, you know, like the studio had done a lot of shovelware and a lot of handheld stuff. So I think the goal of Bill um, or the, you know, the the CEO and the owner was to, you know, like really make that jump into like the next gen consoles and everything. And, um, and which was a noble one at the time. And so it was a big, big project for the studio, you know. Was like, it a new thing? To, I mean, like an open world uh, co-op, open world game. Like, yeah. was that based on something that you guys had already done or you had to build no. that engine from Yeah, from no, scratch? we just did it in the engine. That's the thing. They had this crazy tech that could just do anything. You want yeah. a racing game, you want a, you want a shooter, you want, like, you just use their engine. It was wild. Um, and so we, we start making this game, uh, and it's, and it's, you know, it's coming together and it was good. Like it, you know, it didn't Metacritic too well or whatever, you know, (laughs) the designer in me was like heartbroken at like Metacritic in the like fifties or something like that, but it had its issues. Um, it was kind of awkward and everything, but then the interesting thing and why I mention it is because what was the, I mean, what was like the core loop? I mean, you're running around discovering stuff like there's a story, but like, like in Lego, you can smash stuff, right? You can like, smash stuff. So like we had barrels. You... So you got Scooby snacks, and you know, okay. it was really satisfying to like smash the barrels and have the Scooby. You know, this like crunch, crunch, crunch sort of sound effect yeah. when you got them. And there was combat. So you're like, we like... had these puzzle based sort of combat. Okay. Like, like would there be like trash, trash enemies to like pad it out? Yeah, somehow? yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you're like, it's pretty much exactly Lego Star Wars, okay. but if you put this like clue collection mystery yeah. narrative throughout it that's that was the game okay um and so we we ship the game um but we'd kind of if i was honest like blake and i you know we'd kind of gone a bit too ambitious on the design and it just kind of it just really bit us like i know a big thing that we were shooting for was like shared health you know between you and your players um, and we had the shared health bar that just like everyone at the team wanted to murder us and rightly so because it was the worst idea um, what, was, what was the problem with it? it just like <laughs> you're dying and I'm being punished for it, you know? Yeah, like right, it right. was just one of these things that in it was like a perfect Because you would you would both die? If, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That yeah, sounds like, bad. Yeah, it, it was. It was terrible. And I think honestly That's Oh, I should. <laughs> you made that. I say that's the thing that makes Lego Lego those Lego games work. Is yeah. like you have one person who stays alive, and then it just you know, even though it doesn't make any sense, like yeah. whatever, the game just keeps rolling, right? Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. So it was just totally the wrong thing that we were trying to chase, and I, and I think as well that like. Honestly, what was your concept? Like, why did you think this was a... <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, I think Blake was a lot more for it than I was. But I also think that we just didn't truly understand it well enough. I think it was just that that is like, re- that's really co-op. You know, like yeah. if you're, if okay. we're both happy with a shared you resource that we're managing. But the, you know, the folly looking back on it in hindsight is that 
you're managing this shared resource is not what the game is about, you know? Like yeah. we want to actually just smash things and collect the Scooby yeah. Snacks. Also, and what's, and, what's the audience that yes. you're making this game for, <laughs> exactly, right? Like, exactly. And at that point in time, we were making it for us, clearly, <laughs> uh, which is obviously always the wrong move. So rightfully so, the team wanted to murder us. So when the project finished up, and the project was kind of brutal, like that one, because it was a bigger game, it was hard. We had to cut some levels like right at the end and there was a lot of crunch and everything. And there, I remember there being a big po post-mortem and we just copped it, like design really copped it, and rightfully so. Um, and anyway, Blake decided to, like unrelated, Blake moved on to do different things. And I was sort of left with the design, like mantle at the company. And I was doing this second Scooby-Doo game that we did. And I just remember thinking like, okay, fundamentally how we approach design was like fraught on the last one. Mm -hmm. So... I've got to rethink how we do it. And this studio itself, you know, like you say, like what's the game, who's the, who are you making this game for, right? It's not, this isn't like my artsy game <laughs> studio or this isn't, you know, Bungie or something like that at the time. I'm not making the next Halo, I'm making kids shovelware titles. And so I was like, okay, based on the fact that we overscoped too much, I made a pact with our executive producer, Nicole, and I said, you have like, you are not going to get any resistance from me on anything. If you want to cut something or whatever, you just say it and I'll do it. And mm -hmm. I will design the game in a modular fashion so that we can do that. And then I also was like, like philosophically, I basically shifted into this paradigm of this company is a factory and there is a conveyor belt and there is no big red button to like that I can press at any point in time to stop that conveyor belt. Right. So I need to just pull things off the conveyor belt if things start to get start to pile up or if things get a bit hairy. And then I also made a third decision, which was I am going to make an effort to action, quote unquote, every single piece of design feedback or advice or suggestion or idea that the team has, because that was a big thing. They didn't feel heard from us or right. anything and that we were taking them down this. And it was kind of, I understand how we got there as well, because Blake was kind of one of the only people in the studio, if the only person who had made one of these games before, like this genre. So a lot of it was kind of like, no, no, trust me, we need to go in this way. But I right. think him and I just, you know, we wielded that power a little bit too strongly. Um, and I needed to make, and now Blake's gone and I'm sort of there and we got to continue making games with the whole team. And I needed to turn them around um, towards the design crew. And so the third one was, I'm going to action everything that um, people say. So what that meant was, even if it doesn't go in the game or it's a terrible fucking idea or whatever, I actually actually have to take the time to sit down with that person and hear them out, explain to them why it doesn't really fit with. So then that led to like actually creating a set of raises, like, you know, pillars for the game and stuff like that, that people, you know, I could point to and things. And that project was just amazing. Like we did so much awesome stuff. I think it's like one of the smoothest projects I've ever worked on. And sure enough, one of the big cuts came, like Nicole, the producer did one. Then also Warner Brothers did a classic thing. We were like, because obviously I'd watched all the Scooby episodes and movies and everything right. and the research up for this thing. And there was instances in, and they weren't too uncommon in Scooby-Doo where it wasn't just like, oh, gee, Willie, it's like, <laughs> it's Mr. Jenkins, but right. in a mask. It's like, whoa, it's actually an alien or whoa, it's really a ghost. You know, there were actually, really? yeah, there are a couple oh, episodes that are kind of like weirdly either unexplained or there is like. Yeah, and I, I didn't remember that. That's yeah. interesting. To, and so to we know. went that sort of, we weren't like just straight up like it's a ghost. Oh my God. But we were like more along the lines of it's unexplained. And, 
and right, like, and we got it through all the gates of approval at Warner and then they just got cold feet towards the end of the game. And so then I had to go, I remember there was a, a room that I had, a meeting room at Taurus where I'd laid out the entire story because I'd, um, in post-it notes, because I'd seen it, there was a traveling um, video game exhibition called Game On, I think it was called, years and years ago. And they had the original GTA 3 design document, mm-hmm. which was post-it notes, essentially. Okay. Um, and showing all the progression of all the missions and they had different colored post-it notes that they'd recreated and they traveled around the world. And I was like, that's awesome. So I did it for this Scooby-Doo game. I did it for the first one as well. And so I went into this room and spent a day in there sort of re, re um, sort of jigging the story and everything. But we designed it in a way where it was modular. And one of the parts of like making the design, like making sure that we actioned everything too, was some of the conversations that I had with people about design is it's obvious now, but I was a young, foolish designer in these days, you know, like, so like, it's all obvious in hindsight now, but like, obviously like a lot of the, the, um, the design input and everything was great from some of the, from some of the team. Um, and we, we'd sort of missed it on the last project. And so I actually gave all of the enemy design to the QA department and they like designed the puzzles for the enemies. Cause they were sort of like Zelda esque puzzle, you know, like block and then do this or whatever. Um, and we just had the best, the best time on that project. And we made, so we really understood what it was. Like, interestingly, the first thing that I did on the game was take out the double jump to ground it more and make it more of an adventure action adventure game as opposed to a platformer. Right. We took out death falls, like, so basically because it was a platform, you could fall to your death and respawn. So there was only ever soft fails from failing from the platform. So we, we toned down the platformer angle. We went harder into the mystery and sort of action adventure game, put in some new mechanics for like searching for clues and everything. And we wrote some, wrote some really like banger stories, you know, like Scooby-Doo score stories. But um, that was like a really, really, really smooth production. And the game shot up like the Metacritic shot up by like 22 or 23 points and still wasn't a, sure you know, it still wasn't like the best game ever. But like I but said, they nice didn't want it. But it's nice to see that like yeah. it actually makes a difference. Like yeah. the stuff that you were, you know, the changes you made. And I think seeing that on that project, and again, this is that pitch to ship cycle that teaches you so much. Like it changed who I was as a designer as well. It changed my entire approach to design and how I, how I go about it. I used to want to be really hands-on and doing things, but like I had so much success on this project by actually farming things out to the, and empowering the people around me and that sort of high level creative leadership, as opposed to like needing to be the designer in there, like tweaking the values or doing every single thing on the design document. And there was, there, and I still beautifully, there's still like, you know, videos on YouTube, like long plays, because the game had a fantastic structure to it as well. Like there was a hub world. Basically there is a, so it's called Scooby-Doo in the Spooky Swamp. Mm-hmm. And the hub world is this swamp that as you come back from these other missions and or stories, so you go off and I think there were like three others. One was like a, Mexi- a Mexican sort of like Western style cowboy town. And then the other one was like, you know, you're, there's a Wendigo up in the Alps. Uh, I think there might've been one more. I can't remember. But when you come back from that, your hub world progresses more and everything. And I lifted that directly from like Hitman 2 Silent Assassin. <laughs> and I just, I just loved this, this hub world. And it just, it just worked out so well. It was one of these games that I think was like truly like a sum of its parts. It wasn't without its problems, obviously, but it felt like a real, real achievement in regards to product structure, the fidelity of the, the, 
the game and what the studio achieved and it sold incredibly well for Warner really? Brothers as well. Nice. Yeah. yeah, we shipped over a million units, I'm pretty sure. And, and you know what the, you know, the, uh, the previous one had done? Um, no, I'm not sure, but I know that this one was like the, the big Much one better. for sure. Yeah. yeah, but the the first one did enough to like, you know, Justify, warrant another yeah. one, yeah. yeah. Then there was another game that was called, it was actually... So the studio went through some weird times and we had to like, I remember everyone in the company was kind of like do original pitches. Like we, we don't have project at the moment. Let's do, get some original pitches out the door. And there was one that was called, um, so again, the CEO of Taurus was like a big flight simulator guy. I think he actually might've even had his pilot's license and there had been like, he had some grandkids that were young. And so he had this idea to make a, like a flying game, but for kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's awesome. I can get it, get into that. Because again, that sort of like action adventure, light RPG sort of games. I grew up with like, you know, Banjo-Kazooie and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, we can do something in that sort of format. And so, you know, and again, it's not just me. There are other folks at the studio that contributed to this, but that was one of the projects and it was called Stunt Flyer 3D. And it was a 3DS game, you know, to come out. And it was just this like real whimsical little game for kids that was um, this... <laughs> this flying game that was just super fun. And you go and do some wish- missions, had like the pilot wings sort of stuff fly through the wings, but then, you right. know, you got to go and collect the cow and take it back to the farmer and just had this really great sense of adventure and like this progression to the world that really felt super strong. Um, and it's something that I've just always loved. Like I, you know, in this, you know, this edge <laughs> top 10 that I wrote, um, Alex asked me to write a hundred words on my, on my favorite one as well. Um, and it was Zelda. And I think, one of the big things that stuck with me for, from Ocarina of Time was I went back to it. So I pl- I played it like, I finished it like eight times as a kid or something like that. I remember right. the first time I played it and I was like, no, I was not young. I was like maybe 13 or something like that. Um, and I remember the first time I finished it, like I, I cried at the when the credits rolled because it was kind of like that my time in this world had come to an over. end, you right. know, it was over and all these characters. And it's got the classic, like, um, return of the Jedi, like end or ending where it's like, <laughs> right, everyone's, they're all there. They're all there and, yep. um, yeah. And so it really, it got me. And, um, but I played, <laughs> I played it like another seven times or something and, you know, did all the different playthroughs. And then I came back to it years later. And the thing that blew me away more than anything was how small the world was. Like, you know, when you go back to your school, mm-hmm. when you're in right. primary school or junior high and you're like, oh my God, this place is so much smaller. Yeah. It was like, it had that impact on me, but for a virtual world, but for entirely different reasons. And it was that abstraction and projection that I was talking about earlier, where, you know, if games are this simulation that we're just pushing on the boundaries of all of the time and sort of testing and seeing how far they could go, that game just gave this impression that it was endless. Like even small things like that over the 3D planes, like that were only 40 meters away, you could see this blurry like thing of Mount, I forget what it's called, Mount Doom or whatever it's called in the game. <laughs> Probably not Mount yeah, Doom. No, but... I don't think it's Mount Doom. <laughs> um, you know, or you could see like the, you know, Ganon's castle or whatever and the little legends that would happen. Like, you know, you could catch the Hillian loach, you know, this eel. And mm-hmm. of course, because it was kind of pre-internet or early internet, like they were these rumors. I remember... There was like two sort of rumors that I really remember. And one was this massive eel that you could catch when you were fishing. And if you had this particular lure and when at particular time of the day, and I was like, surely it's not real. And the kids at school were like, no, no, it's real. I've got, I'm like, okay. Anyway, one day I catch it. But then there was another one that was for the fire sword. I remember reading on like game FAQs, all of these walkthroughs and points of like, do this and do that. This is how you get it. 
just absolute bullshit. Like did not <laughs> exist whatsoever. But the game had this way of like making you feel like anything was possible. Right. And I remember and sort of in a similar vein, there is something that happened recently or recently about five years ago with Bloodborne where play, um, there's basically a Reddit, a subreddit dedicated to this part of the game. I'm not super familiar with this part of the game, but apparently there's these dungeons that are kind of like procedurally generated in regards to like the enemies that are in there and stuff, right. and you can rerun them and everything. I might be getting this entirely wrong, but like I'm pretty sure that's the case. Anyway, they this set of players discovered this enemy that no one had ever found before hmm. that was in that it featured in one of the early E3 gameplay demos or something that right. they just assumed was cut from the game. Yep. And this was like four or five years post-launch. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget when he was interviewed or whatever by one of the, you know, gamers from this subreddit was interviewed um, by someone like Eurogamer or something. He said, if that's down there, then what else is <laughs> down there? And it like kind of sums it all up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, so we've done a bit of that, like we did heaps of that in our mellow to help push it out. But I guess this is going back to the Taurus games. It's kind of something that I've always tried to like, sprinkle into the games that we work on is like this sense of just these little mechanics and these little features that can basically feel like you've pulled a thread and like it just something came out you didn't expect yeah Yeah. like you know you touch the bounds of the simulation and it just goes and just flies off back into the distance as far as the eye can see and your whole idea of how big the game is and the bounds of that simulation and the possibilities for your fantasy and the role playing that's occurring within it are just are far greater than what you expect Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we had a we had a great time with that on a bunch of Taurus games. So I think they're the two that stick out to me. Had yeah. a lot of fun making Monster Jam Urban Assault because it was basically just Tony Hawk's Pro Skater but with monster trucks. Okay. <laughs> so you like do go up like we made literal skate parks in the game, you know, right, you like yeah, you yeah. go and you you do these big flips and everything. And the, you know, the monster truck community was so angry with us because that's not how monster trucks, you know, monster trucks <laughs> only do like 40 kilometers an hour and they, they can't jump that high and everything. But I was like, yeah, but you're going to buy it and you're going to play this because it feels so good. It's so much fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah we, we had could. a ball. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, so it's interesting because when you first started talking about Taurus and how, you know, you have to. You know, you're making your thing and then you mm-hmm. send it off mm-hmm. and you're at that point, you're just done. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing, you, there's no way you could change it anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, so exactly. like pretty much you're moving on to the next game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in my mind, I was thinking about like, this is what it seems like that's a big challenge because like often when I talk to young designers about like what's the most important thing is like you got to find a way to get the feedback loop going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're not listening to people playing your game mm-hmm. and listening, you know, like taking the, what they're saying seriously, you're not going to grow as a designer. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so. Um, you know, it's like how, how, you know, what, what, what could you do in a situation mm-hmm. like that? So it's interesting to hear you identify that like one of the things you did for the, the last Scooby-Doo game was, mm-hmm. you know, take time, a big part of your time, it sounds like to take mm-hmm. the feedback from the team, which yeah. is kind of the only option you had. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There was things that we would do every now and then we'd get like kids in for play testing. Yeah. You know, we'd be in the big boardroom and you'd, we had like little tactics or you put the, the lollies out and you'd have the metric of how often they reach for the lollies was like how engaged <laughs> they were. And, right. Um, you know, and that was, that was good, but obviously, you know, it was just us sort of haphazardly doing it. It wasn't like a real empirical, like yeah. scientific experiment. Um, but that was kind of it. Other than that, it was just the team. But yeah. the good thing was about Taurus was we just had this mix of people who were like 
fucking loved games and all they did at lunch was like play games and talk about games and they go home and play games and they spend all day making them and then we had people at Taurus who hated video games mm-hmm. I remember there was a guy behind me lovely lovely dude uh, programmer sat right behind me and I remember talking to him about something we were doing in the hub world for Scooby-Doo and I was like oh it's kind of like in have you played Batman Arkham Asylum how you can see the trophies and you can he's like no I haven't played it I'm like oh, okay what about this game and you know and they have it in that and he's like I haven't played it and I made a joke and I'm like do you even play games? And he's like, no, I hate video games. <laughs> and I remember like being like almost like, <gasps> like some, you know, like alarms were going to go off and the police were going to come and remove him from the studio. Who am I supposed to call? Yeah, exactly. How do I escalate this? <laughs> um, but it, he was just like, what I came to realize was that his sort of <laughs> disdain for the, for the video game, like for video games themselves made him fantastic at his job because mm-hmm. he had this while everyone else was kind of so close to things or was making things, you know, in the image of other games or things they had played, he came to things with this completely blank slate and just thought of the customer, yep. you know, he thought of the brief and what he was delivering for um, for us and design, making sure it was performant. And then that like someone was going to play it and he would say things that were just, you know, no one who'd, you know, experienced all those games before would mention that I mentioned yeah. would would raise it, but because he hadn't, he'd raise it and we'd improve upon something that you know was carried some flaw that was carried forward in every design convention that video games do. Um, and so we've actually like I kind of look for that now in in folks, and I, I think one of the beautiful things about video games too is that there's such a hypocrisy. You know, like they're such a phenomenal, magical, empowering, incredible medium. But at the same time, like they're just such bullshit as well, you know. Like there's, there's, there's really like this contradiction there, and I think the ability to like em- embrace both of those makes for great designers and game developers. And so, I actually have a bunch of people at League of Geeks who are just kind of like, eh, you know, meh about video games. They just want to come and work with great people and do great things. And you know, it's a place that gives them the ability to do that. They might enjoy the pr- the challenges that development presents, but don't go home and play a bunch of video games, you know. I think yeah. I'm like that to some degree. Like, obviously, I'm a huge video game enthusiast and everything, but I'm not. I wouldn't call myself, like, a gamer, capital G. Like, I don't identify as that. I don't I don't really play a lot of games. I'm kind of like when people ask me now if I play games, you know, I feel like that carpenter who's, you know, outdoor patio is half done or the chef that doesn't cook at home, you know. <laughs> and my partner, Tiffany, God bless her, like, she hates – well, she doesn't hate video games, but she has no interest in them, you know. Yeah. Um, and like that's divine to me. Like if I went home and my partner was like, "Hey, let's jump on Baldur's Gate three, or did you see the latest controversy about this?" You know, I would just like I think my eyes would like roll back into their head and like shrivel up. Like I can't after spending all day talking about video games, reading about video games, making video games, arguing about them, playing them. Like I need some sort of a break. And I think that you know there is there are some people who can be fully absorbed in the medium, in the industry, in games themselves, playing them. And that brings a particular element to game development and design, whatever way you're contributing as a maker to the medium. And then there's this other element where it's like, no, no, just like the the Miyamoto, you know, um, sort of like finding designers that actually do things outside of video games and have hobbies and everything outside of video games. I think it's super important. Yeah. It's tough to know. Like, I, I swing back and forth of, like, what I think I should be doing. I mean, what I actually do is sometimes I'll play a lot of games, sometimes mm-hmm. I don't. Um, I've gone through stretches where I really don't play games often. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, I really, like, missed the 90s. Like, yeah. I didn't from, <laughs> like, 
91 till 98, which yeah. is a pretty good chunk of time. <laughs> like I really wasn't focusing on video games at all. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, um, and now I really take a good effort to like play, play anything that looks interesting for a couple yes. hours, yeah. but it's super rare where I'll ever get more than like 10 or 20 hours into a game because at some point I'm just like, what am I doing with my time? You know, yeah, like I, I'm not, I'm not learning anything more from this game. Yeah. And like, if I'm going to play more games, I should play a different game because I've got a yeah. hundred other games here that I want to get to. Yeah. Um, but and, but I I do think there's I also but I, I'm sure there is value in like going that deep with a game, but yeah. it's just you know I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I do I think I'm pretty much the same. I will say that you know now hosting the Game Makers Notebook podcast yeah. has helped me a lot because you know Claudia, our producer, will be like, "Can you speak to these people?" And I'm like. Yeah, I'll yeah, I would love to play that game or have an excuse to play that game, you know, and I'll need to play, you know, five to six hours or try and finish it for some games. And that's helped me stay sort of contemporary. And of course the podcast is generally looking for games that have, you know, had exceptional success critically or commercially that year. So it's good to sort of be in touch with the conversation. And then every now and then I will find a game will just grab me. Like I'm not as much as I say I'm not a capital G gamer. Like I'm still someone that can absolutely fall under the spell of like a really good video game, you know, and it'll it'll grab me and I'll see it through or something. But that's that happens a lot, a lot more, a lot rarer these days. Um, it, but I do feel that there is something, I think once you've worked in games for a while and especially as a designer, you can, you know, you can get a feel for something pretty quickly. You know, you can get a feel right. for what it's doing and you can sort of see like, okay, I don't think there's much more that's going to unfold before me. Um, sometimes, obviously, you're pleasantly surprised. You'll be playing a game for a while and then something unfolds or it subverts itself in some interesting way. But I do fear sometimes, like, <laughs> it's funny because, like you say, I don't know really what I should be doing. Like, I, I do feel like a, a really well-rounded sort of media diet and, I guess, you know, experiences in life is going to contribute more to my craft than just mainlining video games. You know, there is... I think maybe, well, I guess every medium is kind of incestuous in that regard in regards to inspiration, like musicians are, you know, inspired by other musicians and filmmakers are inspired by their filmmakers. But there's something about video games that feels even more so sometimes that like it can feel so insular in regards to our inspirations, um, which is just why I think it's phenomenal in the past. Well, what would it be now? God, 15 to 20 years, you know, that like how much it's opened up and the, the broader range of voices and experiences and everything that's provided. Um, because I think for a long time, it was kind of just like video game designers, you know, I'm being very generalist and kind of facetious here, but like video game designers making games <laughs> that are based on like other games, you know, or, you know, I love this game. So I'm going to make another game kind of like that or something. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's tough because I also think that um, in our space, right, yeah. like the you know indie studios mm -hmm. where you know we're hoping to make a game that'll sell, you know, whatever five hundred thousand copies or yeah. whatever, right? Like if we sell more, that's super awesome, yeah. and you know, the you know, like uh, you know we can do a lot more with that. But like we're not, sorry, <sighs> way to put it. But the thing is, we the games the games we've made and the games uh, I'm going to make. Mm -hmm. They're going to be they're going to be commercial games, yeah. and they they can succeed because they're built on the base of these other successful games. Mm. So I know there's an audience yes. for them, yes, right. Um, and so it's you know when you talk about how 
uh, you know, there's this just feedback loop mm-hmm. of like we're making mm-hmm. the same games over and over again. And everything's mm-hmm. based on everything else. I don't really know what the alternative is <laughs> for me as like a business person. Yes. Right. Yeah, totally. Like it, um, you know, if you're sitting in, and it also could just be easy. That's just kind of like the type of designer I am. Yeah. Like if you said like, okay, Soren, mm-hmm. I mean, I felt like, for example, I, I felt like off world was pretty different. Yeah. Like, yeah it really absolutely. wasn't something yeah, out yeah, there, yeah, yeah. but I can tell you like, it's, it's really just cobbled together from parts of these four yeah. other games, yeah. right? Like everything in there had been done before, you know, just not mm-hmm. in this specific combination. Yeah. Right. Totally. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, I don't know. It's, it, I, I I think it's because the level of literacy you need to be able to enjoy games is just so much higher than other mediums yes. that I think it's okay that a lot of our work is based off of other stuff yeah. out there before. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we are stuck with the fact that, like, gamer is a thing and there's not going to be a thing of, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a movie watcher or I'm a <laughs> music listener or whatever. I'm a, book, I'm a reader, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's still a challenge. It's a challenge it, it presents challenges to yeah. people and it's great that there are games that, you know, the hyper casual games on mobile yeah. or just, you know, whatever the games that like the intention is they like, this is a game that anyone could play. This mm-hmm. person maybe has never played a video game before in their yeah. life. Like the games, like sometimes when we talk about when we were, we're talking about like, okay, let's, how do we teach people how to play old world? Mm-hmm. Like there's certain things we're just not going to like, this person has played a turn-based game before. Yeah. Right. Yep, this yep, person yep. probably knows what hex is. This yep. person knows this. Like, I'm not going to try. I, <laughs> yeah. I, the like, board is made up of hexes. There, yeah, there, yeah. there is a cost to kind <laughs> yeah. of like thinking that like, okay, we have to worry about someone who's never played a game yeah. before. Like, that's not what we're doing. We're making a game for the Civ audience. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that. That's what we're making it for. That's how yeah. we're able to survive. Mm-hmm. Right. These are. These are weird things, but and there's and there's other people who are able to work in this field where mm-hmm. they're they they don't have they don't work from that assumption, but. It's, it's, it's tough. Like, I don't think there's any one, one answer here. No. Just, you gotta know what type of game you're making. Yeah, exactly. And I fully agree with everything you've just said. Like, and this is kind of the grand hypocrisy, even in me saying all of this stuff, is that our studio, so League of Geeks, our, our studio strategy and purpose is essentially to take strategy games and crack them open to a broader audience through making them more accessible, through making, um, through changing the subject matter from, you know, what they've been by before, making the subject matter more cross-culturally accessible. Um, And also then obviously having like a really high bar for the aesthetic and, you know, having a really signature key aesthetic there. But as a part of that, like we, it's funny because baked into that strategy is what I was sort of just lambasting before, which is we are making strategy games and we're leveraging, like if I talk about Jump Light, it's, we always said it was like FTL meets Two Point Hospital or FTL meets Evil Genius, you know, or RimWorld, so you can interchange those three. It's got a bit of every one. But the thing that we're doing to sort of bring something new to it. And we talk about it, we call it putting the pill in the peanut butter, you know, at League of Geeks is we reached back into the seventies into, sorry, my stomach's grumbling. <laughs> Coming through the microphone. Um, those tacos we had for lunch. Um, we, um, we take the pill, put it in the peanut butter. And because we reached back into the seventies and we were like, there's so many anime games and everything out there, but like no one's really doing this sort of clunky, charming seventies anime that like these, these grand space operas like Star Blazers or like, you know, the early Gundam or space pirate captain Harlock or, you know, even stuff earlier, like, you know, future boy Conan by Miyazaki had like this real charm to it that 
it just no one's really sort of tackling and it's and it's this kind of untapped market and we can bring it in and we can do things like a very specific decision to have the protagonist be a princess you know mm-hmm. female protagonist be a princess kind of without without actually going stars and full-blown sorcery like having that real myth to it like that that very universal sort of relatable myth um to the to the license and taking it but when you play it it feels and it plays just like if you've laid down rooms in Two Point Hospital, laid down rooms in, you know, props or whatever in mm-hmm. Evil Genius, right. plays just come and they just do it. Like when we did playtesting, it was like if they ticked Evil Genius or whatever on their on their um, surveys before they came in, they just went, they flew through the build mode. They had right. no problems whatsoever. And so our entire studio is kind of based around leveraging these conventions and cracking into this genre that has this very hardcore, very committed audience, but we feel is incredibly underexploited. And now, as you'll know, there are strategy games that are these mid-core strategy games that are huge billion-dollar licenses. Like, you know, you have your Civs or you have your Age of Empires. These are core strategy games. So the the genre itself has, and especially, you know, cross-culturally too, and like cross, cross-gender cross as well. Like there's a lot of the time, you know, strategy has been sort of associated as like a male-dominated genre, and it is to a large degree because of, you know, the, you know, um, elements like mastery and all these other things that are typically more found in sort of like male gamers, not exclusively, but typically. Um, but when you talk, like if you, if you talk to sort of women who are, say, my age, one of the games that they'll likely say that they played as a kid is Age of Empires. Mm-hmm. Like the cut through on that was huge. And there are things in that game that obviously have like a, an appeal regardless of your background or your culture. In fact, because of the different cultures in it, they explicitly appeal to people who are naturally aren't Western or, you know. And so there is this way that we feel strategy can just be taken and unfortunately, like I was saying before, and again, this is the sort of contradiction and hypocrisy, is that strategy has been almost more than maybe other than shooters or something like that, as more than any other genre has been really quite incestuous and like, you know, in regards to the recycling of ideas and subject matter and everything. Like how many more, you know, sort of like World War II strategy games are there going to be? Or like, and also then this, because of the it being such a hardcore genre, uh, and because of these conventions that are sort of um, internal to strategy games, there is like almost <laughs> some of the worst player entry pipeline design conventions in strategy games and anything else. So they have this like 40, 40 meter vertical wall, you know, of getting into them. That was one of the things of Solim Inferno, one of the best strategy games ever made, but like good luck to fucking anyone trying to play the original, right? Yeah. So we want to really take the, the genre and remove those elements of it that are just a little bit too internalized or like too cyclical and like crack it open so that the parts that are really strong, that are those core sticky mechanics, that is that one more turn style gameplay, um, that is that really, you know, that when you're stuck in that cold glory of like a difficult decision and and something pays off and this plan that you've had for hours come, starts coming to fruition, those feelings that you only really get from strategy games, they, they don't discriminate against gender or like or age or anything. Um, we had kids from five playing Armello and, you know, people play it with their grandma that's, you know, 70 or whatever, and they all have those moments. And so I think that there is something that we can do when we talk about like, 
okay, well, what do we retain and what do we, where do we need to look for outside experiences or bring new fresh voices and everything to the, to the genre? I think that there are those things, like you say, like there's nothing wrong with hexes. It's not like we need to throw out hexes or someone needs to come up with a bad idea. Sorry, a new idea because that would be a bad idea probably. But like um, there are elements that I think we can really question hard, especially in strategy in the area that we work in. And as people who run commercial studios, like we have 70 folks. And so it's like, all right, well, we got 70 people. Like we need to keep those mouths fed. These games need to be successful. You know, we don't have a parent company who's just going to write another check if we have a miss here. Um, we kind of, these things have to, hit and they have to land on day one uh and so we got to take these like tried and true strategy mechanics that really work that we know have this incredible um replayability to them and then and long-term appeal once you're in them and then put them in like put that pill in the peanut butter of reaching outside of the genre outside of video games itself and like bringing something into it that is cross-cultural that people can grab on and get into the game and i and i think are we doing it well? I don't know. Like we're getting solid traction on the game's appeal. I think probably by the time this podcast is out, like <laughs> both of them might be even be in the market. Um, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the hope. And like you say, I don't know. It's hard sometimes to know where that line is. You yeah. Know? It, yeah, it's hard for me to judge because like the the market has just constantly surprised me to see weird, super obtuse games. Yeah. Like just grow and do better and better. And like you know, you see. I mean, it's just. You, you know, to, to see the success of your, you know, your Dwarf Fortresses or your yeah. Rimworlds or Crusader Kings or yeah. your, you know, all the Paradox games, basically, mm-hmm. it's just like I've it, I've just kind of been bemused watching Paradox just get more and more yeah. successful off of these games, which like are really kind of too, too hard, too heavy for me, the too obtuse <laughs> like for me to get into. Like I've never really gotten over the hump with, with any of them because yeah. there's just so much going on. And um uh, but I have to remember that it's it's you know it's, it's just so hard to, to to think that there's one solution to things because that, because I, as I'm talking about the paradox games and I think one of the things that make it, makes them work is that they just these are real time games that just mm-hmm. happen and that yeah. there's a lot of players who just kind of surf along them yeah right you know okay. and they don't necessarily feel like they need to understand anything but still I mean it's pretty crazy like that 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 the, these audiences keep that keeps growing. And, you know, it's like, yeah, we have all these games that have these huge walls yeah. for people to get over, but people keep getting over that wall. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think, so I think it's, it. I, it's a really astute observation that they're real. I never thought about that with Paradox games that like the real time element and that, that being a common trend through most of their games, like is a huge factor. Um, that's really astute. I think some of the things that's interesting is, and we found this with Solium Inferno and we announced it and started talking about it, right? our reboot of that game is we're super scared that it was like a niche of a niche of a niche. It's like, okay, that's going to be the hardest thing to do. It's like, not only is this like a hardcore strategy game, it's like a hardcore, hardcore strategy game, crazy niche. How do we bust this open? But in the first sort of press tour that I did last year around this time for the game, after we announced it, the thing that blew me away was that I wasn't just talking to like enthusiast core strategy game of press. I was talking mm-hmm. to like, your everyday mainstream gaming press or whatever, um, who, you know, are covering Destiny or, you know, those sorts of games. And I'm telling them about Solium Infernum and they're just like, their eyes are lighting up and they're so interested in it and they're so excited for it. And the what, real, was, what was sparking their imagination the most? The interesting thing is, so 
we could talk a bit about the actual mechanics and everything a bit, but like just to follow this thought through, the thing that blew me away was that as games, and this is what we didn't count on, is that we know that games have expanded in regards to their reach and like how how much games have become ubiquitous in everyone's life. They're like the main aesthetic form now of a generation, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so people are playing, you know, all types of video games, you know, just everyday people. But what happens as well is when that happens is that the actual hardcore, hardcore niches in the center of that sort of that graph, like that expands as well. Yeah. And so we're finding like, as I'm describing Solium Infernum and the concept of it. And like, there are people who are like, might've in the day, like back in the day, like, you know, they enjoyed Golden Eye and whatever, some of the other games I mentioned, but they weren't playing like Crusader Kings one or Hearts of Iron or something. But now you have players that are playing like Crusader Kings three, and it's their first real strategy game that they've ever played, but it's, gotten them in the door so i think there's one element for the paradox thing and you know how how strategy games are becoming more accessible or this commercial success of paradox as well like you know huge like publicly traded you know publisher now with all these titles that just do crazy numbers obviously like one of them i think is the niche expanding along with paradox right is that that the niche is growing in numbers just like video games is growing in numbers it's not like the amount of people playing video games is growing at some a rate disproportionate to the core Um, also growing but then also paradox in and of itself i think that and especially you see it from stellaris onwards there has been a far greater focus on playability and usability and aesthetics even and polish in your paradox games than there was before like i remember back in the day you know they had their little chart of the 10 things that make a paradox game it might still be around but they're almost like you get here fred get up or folks you know and they'd be like defiantly that they didn't care about the art or the, you know, the polish of the game that it was about the hardcore mechanics and the replayability and everything. And, and it really served them well. But I think there's, you know, in recent years, Paradox is almost like a, a whole new company in the sense that they are, these games like Crusader Kings 3, the numbers that that did is wild. But in comparison to Crusader Kings 2, that game is so accessible. Right. Like the work that they did to make that game accessible. And I don't just mean in regards to the player entry pipeline and being able to get into it. I remember trying, I've never played Crusader Kings 2. I tried once and within 15 <laughs> minutes, I had 11 <laughs> tutorial pop-ups on screen at yeah. once. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm, this isn't for me. I can't, I can't get past this mental hurdle, but I've been in here and I've given it a shot and sort of know what it's about. And I bounced out. But Crusader Kings 3, I dove into, but they didn't just do the first time user experience. They even did things like, I think what helped make Crusader Kings 3 a huge success was tapping into the Sims players by mm-hmm. making the portraits 3D and having all the crazy, like really in their marketing and everything, diving into also like the craziness of like you're marrying your cousin off to your niece and then having a scaly baby, you know, <laughs> like that that kind of like that, not just the mechanical sort of greasing of the wheels and getting people in, but also the subject matter and how they chose to like what things to put into prominence and the polish and the uplift of their game's fidelity. Well, I think Crusader Kings is a good example of discovering an audience. Yes. Right? Like when they first made the game, it was like, well, they had, they did, you know, EU, right? And like that did, that did pretty well. So like, okay, well, we can go back in time more to the, you know, the medieval times and probably just kind of naturally suggest itself like, well, 
kings were a big deal. So we yeah. probably want to make it about, about people. And, you know, I think at that point, like the kind of the feedback loop just started that led yeah. them to the inevitable path where they are today, where, I mean, because they were paying attention to like what people cared about yeah. and what people cared about were these weird, crazy stories. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, yeah, it's the storytelling aspect right, right. has such appeal. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things about like we've, so <laughs> for people who've been trying to follow the thread here for the <laughs> yeah. last 20 minutes, like we've been saying a bunch of really contradictory stuff. We'd be like, yes. oh, you should be taking influences outside of games. Yeah. You should be basing it. Then, oh, but also actually you kind of have to have all of your stuff yes. based off of games because yeah. your audience has all these, you know, it's like it, there, there's no, there's no one answer to this. No. Like there's just all these pulling things that are difficult. But I think one thing that we've both kind of talked about is it's, it's just puzzling that the core just keeps growing. Yeah. Like, and how is this, like, how are people keep, how is the audience for these difficult games becoming bigger and bigger? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that really is different for um, games as opposed to, I mean, I don't know why it's different, but it just seems like it's this perfect, there's a perfect marriage. All of the stuff online that is around games yeah. just really supercharges it. Because if you talk about Crusader Kings, you also have to talk about, you know, YouTube and you have to talk yeah. about Twitch, you have yeah. to talk about Discord, and you have to talk about the forums and you have to talk about the the conventions yeah. and you know, all everything that surrounds it that turns it into a hobby for people yeah. and brings new people in, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, just, it's a super important part of the story. Like yeah. I really think, believe, believe like without that stuff, you wouldn't mm. see the type of success that it's had. I agree. And I think it, funnily, I have my own experience of that with Crusader Kings 3. I'm not a Discord guy. I don't get it. I think it's like my first, as I get older, it's the first like technology that I was like, I just do not enjoy or understand. Right. Like, and, but Crusader Kings 3 Discord was a huge part of the experience for me. I joined the Crusader Kings 3 discourse and basically got a crash course from randoms around the world in like medieval marriage law, yeah. right? As I'm playing the game and coaching me through it. And I had that, I had Discord up on a second screen the entire time when I was playing. And it, it kind of reminds me of going to a mate's place and watching their kid playing Fortnite whilst watching someone stream Fortnite on Twitch. Yeah. And then they also had their mates like on their iPad or whatever in a Discord call they were talking. And I was just like, this is wild, you know, like not in such an abstract and weird way that was con is still to me kind of like really hard to even understand. Like this kid's experience of Fortnite was this kind of like, <laughs> to invoke the, the horrid word, like this transmedia experience, yeah. you know, with like with all these different inputs. But you are you are right. And I think the contradictory thing, like you're right to highlight it as well, again, for all of the listeners right now, it is this, yeah, there's so much hypocrisy in what we're saying. There's so much contradiction. and But I think that's the beauty of what we do. I kind of like wading through that chaos of the contradiction and trying to understand where the right moves are like where do you go left or right or where do you go up and yeah. down on these on on this spectrum and yeah. i think i mean the simple, simplest way to put it now is you can succeed you can have great success in the industry doing the complete opposite thing someone else is doing who has also had great success in the industry yeah like that's that's literally the case right now yeah like there's multiple directions to go it's just important you understand what? where you're going why you're doing it what your audience is what's what's like the up most what's the you know, the positives and negatives of yeah. like the choices you're making. I completely agree. We're really big on focus at League of Geeks. We have this, we call 2018 the best and the worst year of League of Geeks. Mm -hmm. And it's the best because we shipped our Mellow on Switch. We shipped it on iOS and Android. We basically got a like worldwide merchandising deal that we chose not to go with, but you know, we were negotiated that the whole year. We did a worldwide physical retail deal. We did the biggest numbers we'd ever done on Steam. Um, but we'd released a DLC. But also it was like 
probably signaled the beginning of the end for Armello in regards to like its traction with the community and stuff on Steam because we were just so scattered that we just didn't focus on the right thing. You know, mm-hmm. like there's this great line, success begets opportunities, but opportunities distract. And I think that yeah. was that was what happened to us, you know. And so now we're very, very razor focused as a studio. That's why we didn't have this strategy game. You know, we make strategy games that are approachable with a, um, you know, uh, a signature aesthetic, right? Um, cracking them open for new audiences. That focus that we have now, we didn't have back then, but we understand it now. And when you think about focus as a studio, um, some of the best studios in the world have been operating in that way for however long. Like when you think that Naughty Dog, when you hear someone say that Naughty Dog is a character-driven, is a studio that work, makes character-driven action games, then you're like, oh, totally. Like Crash Bandicoot, like, oh, sorry, The Last of Us 2 is just Crash Bandicoot 11, you know, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. It's the same sure, game, but sure. just like however many iterations or evolutions and it enables you to do that. Um, yep. It's why this, <laughs> I love those studios. And this was Taurus Games as well. It's like those studios that just make different games all the time. Like I'm really in awe of them and it's amazing. Like it, when you just sort of pivot from one style of game to another, um, it's it's quite remarkable how those studios how those studios do that. Yeah, Supergiant's another one that's like, you know, what do you call it? Hades is just like Bastion 5, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty rare to see a successful studio that really jumps all over the place. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know you're left with kind of like really... Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty rare. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get back on the timeline yeah, of Taurus. Yeah, yeah. So you, how long? So you know, you did all these games. You said you made yeah. ten games in three years. Yeah, something were you, like that. Were you yeah. there for three years? Or yeah, about go? three and a half. Okay. So basically, there is this huge event that happened well around the world, but it impacted games in Australia in a really funny way, which was the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. Yep. So around like two thousand and eight or something. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things that I said about the Australian games industry that were a reason to work with us now weren't kind of there anymore. Like yeah. we weren't 50 cents on the dollar. We were like a dollar 10 on the US dollar, you know, and all of a sudden we were super, we cost the same as Sony Santa Monica to make a game, yeah. but we weren't even like, I think. Yeah, about, that's right. I remember hearing a bunch of Australian places got shut down. Huge. There was time. one day. That, yeah. There was one day, it was a Tuesday, I believe it was. Yep. Where I think three studios in Australia just shut down. And I mean, big ones, like with 200 plus people at them. And at the time I was running with a couple of pals, we were running IGDA Melbourne and we had a meetup and, um, and like 300 people rocked up that night to the meetup because they were just like, well, fuck, what do we do? Okay. I guess we'll go to this indie meetup. Um, and you know, funnily enough, some like some partnerships were formed then and there that night, like the beginning of indie companies, but luckily Australia had a bit of an indie, I'm getting to sort of, you know, the, our path and how it affected us. But when this global financial crisis happened and the, like all of the traditional sort of studio structure system in Australia, like we lost a third of the industry essentially overnight and it all collapsed. People either went and started coding databases for banks or they, you know, they maybe went overseas, a few lucky ones. Um, but most of them just actually started making indie games because it was right. like in the golden age of the app store is kicking off, you know, folks like John and that had just had success with Braid and things, you know, on XBLA. And so it, we were deep into that indie renaissance and Melbourne had already had a bit of an indie scene. We've always had an indie scene going back to the demo scene days of like the 90s in, in Australia and especially with the government funding. And then also another thing happened with government funding in Melbourne is that a new guy came in by the name of Brad Giblin really smart, managing the fund. Um, and he made a very distinctive hu- that like change that had a huge impact. It's funny going back on things and seeing how like, you know, the decision of sort of one person or the direction can like have like huge, like, um, you know, uh, 
sort of cascading effects onto onto folks. So look at Montreal. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. they're like probably the best example. Like yeah. A couple of key decisions were made and yeah. now there's a huge now there's like, industry there. Clint was saying yesterday there's like 4,000 people that like Ubisoft Montreal or something. It's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, what he, what he did as like the new digital games media manager or whatever of, of Vic Screen, I was called Film Victoria at the time, was they used to give out grants. The grant was like 250 grand or whatever and you could give it out. But he basically instead of giving out $250,000 lots to these large companies, he just found the indies that were making like new IP and gave them 20 grand or 30 grand and set up a new, we went to them and asked for just marketing or launch funds. Like we were like, we want to actually launch and announce our game. So we just want money for a website, for a trailer, blah, blah, blah. We've got the development covered. And he was like, "Mm, that's a good idea. So then they did a marketing grant as well. And so you could go and get 30 grand to just help with the launch of your game. And that basically just set the indie scene on fire in Melbourne. And so going back to my timeline, as before that sort of happened, as the GFC is happening, Taurus was going through some tough times, you know, they're, they're like, I mean it in the most, in the nicest way, they're like a cockroach of the games industry. They survived everything and they did survive this, but you know, there were big cuts there. We lost half the studio projects got pulled everything. Um, and I just reached a point where I don't think that they wanted like a designer around. Like, I think they thought they did, but were a couple of things like people were going around me to sort of just get stuff done because it was kind of like battle stations you had. And I was like, nah, okay, it's, it's time for me to go elsewhere. And I was kind of getting an itch to see what I could do overseas. So I went to GDC, put myself on the market and started having chats with everyone. And I was like in the running for some big jobs at big studios. Like I think one of them was like a narrative designer on like Splinter Cell Blacklist or something at the time. And wow. then there's, okay. you know, and I was talking to Blizzard about some Diablo stuff and I was, you know, then Bethesda and like, it was just like these big. And so that was going to be my step into AAA. That's what right. I thought I wanted to do. Then I had a guy, um, a friend of mine, Yatsek, who said, what do you, you know, cause I was having trouble with like the HR pipelines and getting into the States you know, from Australia. Cause I was self-taught. I, you heard I dropped out of my college degree. Right. So I couldn't get, it was going to be hard for me to get a visa. And because I will, though I was very experienced at making games, I wasn't very experienced in years. I was very experienced in experience. <laughs> and so like, I, um, I would like, I couldn't even qualify for a visa based on my, because you need like 10 or 12 years experience for the special alien visa or whatever they call it. Or Is this for the time. Uh, Canada or the US? The US. The US but US I was looking US. in Canada and stuff as well. Okay. But anyway, I was just being complete. I was completely dif- disenfranchised with the whole bullshit pipeline, HR pipeline of these big studios. And yeah, this mate, Yatsek. If they were, I'm sorry, this is no, maybe a stupid question, but yeah. if they were interviewing you, would they not know up front that like, we probably can't get a visa for this guy. Or? Yeah, but there are things that I think there are things that they can do to, you know, and investigate it. And like, yeah. I mean, we interview people now where we're like, okay, just put a mark next to them that we're going to have to sort out the visa issue as yeah, we get yeah. further down the process. Yeah, okay. Um, and some of them, like, I would have gotten a visa if they just like sponsored me. Like, say for example, the Bethesda decided that like they wanted to go with me or whatever. They could have, I'm sure, just like gone, hey, let's get this guy a visa. We'll sponsor okay. him or something. So you couldn't do it on your own. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I'm kind of waiting for this next phase of my career to go overseas you know like so many like Hutcho and stuff had done before um and it was dependent on these bloody hr pipelines in this process and i was so disenfranchised and anyway so this mate of mine Yatsek, who i worked with at taurus as well um was like you don't want to be a little cog in a big wheel like that's you're just not that guy and i don't know why you're trying to do it um you should do something here and so that kind of was like a bit of a brain worm and stuck in my head. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I could do something. I, I do actually really just, I don't need to go and work on 
but the Elder Scrolls games or something. I actually just like, you know, like I said about Taurus, like design itself and like working with talented people. Um, and so I was like, what can I do? How can I do it? And then a few things sort of fell into place. Like I, um, I watched an interview with Greg Cassavan, um, cause they were doing the, that was in the lead up to Bastion. Um, mm-hmm. and they just, they just sort of formed, um, Supergiant. And he said that the team behind Supergiant, behind Bastion was only seven people. Right. And I was like, well, holy shit, seven people who were like, and that they were all like ex-studio devs essentially. Right. And I was like, well, that's the kind of scale of stuff that I would love to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to make single mechanic iPhone games, you know, yeah. but if you can make a game that big and th- that fidelity with seven people, I want to do that. So then I had that idea. I'm like, okay, well, that's now I know I want to do like a mid scale sort of like indie game, large scale sort of indie game. How do I do? I don't have money. Um, and then I just kind of had this idea for this points system. <laughs> It's just like, it sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but it's essentially like, <laughs> um, essentially, uh, well, okay, well, we've got a bunch of capital. We can like, in regards to, um, you know, me and the leads that I can get onto the project and the experience and stuff, but I don't have cash. Um, so if we can leverage that capital and get people onto the project, we can cut them in on the profit share and do like a really wholesome, very like secure profit share system, um, where we, all of us really only make, make good if the games go well. Uh, and anyway, so we kind of set it up and that was kind of League of Geeks. I went and asked Ty. How many were you at the start there? There was four. So there was this guy, Yatsek, and then there was Ty and then there was Blake. And then, um, uh, shortly after we had another guy called John come on board, he was our, um, he was our tech director. And you guys were all out of companies now. You were all... No, we were working out of hours. So this was kind of like a passion project that we were doing out of hours. Blake had left games. He was working in like, I think he was, he was in real estate at that point in time, but then he went on to like, God, this dude's so clever. Like he went on to like run like oil pipelines, basically like design and build them and, you know, sort of like project management, engineering sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, crazy for like some Swiss <laughs> what, oil company. What for, were you doing? Yeah, I was still at Taurus. Oh, you're still at Taurus. Oh, no, sorry. I left Taurus and I was now, you know, I was I was in that in-between period because I was going for all these jobs. Yeah. Um, but then I, very soon after we kicked it off, I got a, because um, I had some money saved from Taurus. So I was living on that for a little bit. But then I got a job as a creative director at a studio called Divisive Media, which was just like a, almost like a small boutique creative agency. And what we did was if you had an IP or a license, you could come to us and we would be like, in a sort of transmedia or cross-media sense, be like that license would be good for this or that. So, you know, we had a movie studio come to us or some film producers and they were like, we have this film that we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And we were like, okay, that would make a great free-to-play MMO. So then I was a creative director, so I would like design the MMO. I brought Ty on as the art director. And um, then we would hire another company to sort of like make that. And then we did things like there was graphic novels and different stuff that we tried to do. Um, so I was working there and then moonlighting as League of Geeks. And we did that for a number of years. Um, and so we would just meet wow. every Wednesday night. How many years? Um, we did it. We did it out of, so we formed, I founded the company in January of 2011. I think the words are mellow were first uttered in April of that year. And by that time we had, I had three of my business partners on. So there was four of us. And then we started from that point, we started to come together every Wednesday to um, basically prototype the game on paper. We right. knew that we wanted to make a, a board, a digital board game because the iPad was out. Basically the conception of Armello was the iPad had just come out 
or was, you know, just out and started doing stuff and there were games on it and people were trying to make digital board games, but they were just kind of like, they seemed like shitty licenses and ports of Carcassonne done by like web companies or yeah. something like that. You know, some web company in France had got the license from Asmodee or something and, you know, just made a shitty app. And we were like, this is, this device is so powerful, you know, in, back then. Um, you could do so much on it and imagine what you could do with a digital board game. Like, you know, I remember one of the early things is we knew from the start things like animating cards or yeah. stealth could actually be stealth, you know, as opposed to a, a dice yeah. roll. And well, stuff. I was super excited about the iPad for yeah. that potential too when it came out. I mean, it was like this is a way for me to actually play a bunch of games I never yeah. had a chance to play. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, a lot of them were super crappy, but I was still happy just <laughs> yep, to like put up with it. Yep, not um, having to set up the board and pack it away yep, or anything. Yep, absolutely. So we were like, well, we're experienced devs. Like between us, we'd shipped something like 50 games. So we were like, well, we can were, just... Were you into the board game scene? I enjoyed playing board games. I was more a pen and paper role playing guy. Okay. Like we, um, not D&D, but heaps of other weird shit. Like the okay. old 70s, like... D6 Star Wars or Warhammer 40K Dark Heresy, Paranoia. Um, I, I GM'd a campaign for that went for like 18 months or something that was Legend of the Five Rings. Okay. Um, and so, but the people that I did that with was like Blake and Ty and then a couple of other mates. One actually that works with us now at, at League of Geeks, funnily enough, um, as a senior engineer. But um, so we were kind of... Blake, Ty and I, we worked together, but we also played board games together and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of just was a natural fit. And those guys, like Blake's super into board games. Okay. And, you know, Ty grew up like play, doing role playing and all that sort of stuff as well. So um, we we had the sort, of, the, the sort of brains in the room for it. And we were like, we can just come into this genre and like be best in class. Like it, the bar is so low. And then what we know we can do as well. So we were like, all right, let's do it. Um, we, and of course we didn't know what it was going to be, um, mellow, but we did know there was one chat that we had at a cafe in like, you know, inner city, um, sort of Melbourne where we were like, we know that we wanted by the end of the chat, we knew that we wanted to make a digital card slash board game for the iPad that it would be replayable. So every time you played, it should be different. Like the stories that you create, that it was going to be heavy on betrayal and like backstabbing because Game of Thrones was out at the time. It's a huge thing. We were like, you know, we've got to capture some of that betrayal or that political intrigue of Game of Thrones. Um, And also we had been working on a anthropomorphic like fantasy animal game that we were pitching Blake. Blake grew up reading Redwall and everything. Okay. So him and I and Ty were sort of like trying to get this thing off the ground at Taurus. It never eventuated. And that was going to be like a co-op thing or something. Um, But we were like, why don't we, why don't we do the animals thing again? You know, like that's, because we were trying to look, think of a hook for, because we knew we wanted it to be fantasy, but we're like, can't just make another fucking fantasy game. (laughs) Like what's the hook? And we were like, well, let's do the anthropomorphic thing. And that was, Ty was like, yep, that's awesome. I knew as sort of like a narrative guy that that was going to help like with the narrative of the game be so much more evocative. So, and then Blake said that he had this idea for a game where you were this little mouse called Armello and you wanted to become king or something like that. And you went on this hero's journey. And I was like, that's awesome, but that's not the name of the, that's not the name of the mouse. That should be the name of the game in the world. And that's sort of where it was born. And so from there, we, um, and Kickstarter was kind of blowing up around the same time mm-hmm. or just starting to. So we thought like, okay, we could, oh, maybe the Kickstarter thing came later, but it was definitely blowing up. And so we left that. We're like, all right, eight weeks, let's get this game out. We'll do it. Right. <laughs> and um, eight, eight weeks. And, okay, um, what type, okay, at this point, you had four people? Yeah, four people. And which one, what was one of you uh, like a programmer? programmer? No. 
No. None of you are <laughs> None of us are a programmer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but we got them on very quickly. Um, so John joined us not long after. Um, and then we had our five, and he's a very talented programmer. Went on to work for Unity and a bunch of other stuff. Right. Um, and but, is one of you an artist? Yeah, Ty is a, Ty is a like okay. a yeah, he's a, right. the artist sent from the heavens, a dude so talented. Um, and so, and one of those ones that like, cause he shipped like 30 games he or something, he can do really anything and yeah. so fast. Like he can bash, like he's an incredible digital illustrator and art director and everything, but he can like do UI and 3d modeling and like, you know, animation if he needs to and a bunch of different shit. So we were pretty sorted, but we knew that we wanted to, that I had this like points based system as well, like where we were going to get other people on. So it wasn't just going to be us that we were going to get other people on this points based system that we were all going to work on this point based system as well, but we were directors of the company. So we would be funding it with our own savings. So the the stuff you had to buy, you guys would pay for it. Yeah, exactly. So for example, first thing we did because we'd seen so many companies around Australia just fail because of poor business Mm -hmm. acumen, we went and got the best, I sourced the best video game lawyers in Australia and the best video game accountants or entertainment accountants. And we got them on board and we just paid their silly fees to like get a setup and everything out of our own okay. savings. To and make you sure. wrote like an organization, what would yeah. you call it, a founding document? Yeah, exactly. Got like that. We're all signed split up. the company between you guys. Yeah, and like... yeah. all equal parts in the five mm-hmm. of us. And then, um, but the big document was the point system, like yeah. the employment agreement or the contractor's agreement. And we designed that specifically to favor the contractors over the company in the, because we knew that it had to be fully secure, that we didn't want it to just be some uni project or post uni project where you're like, just join us work for free trust us you know it's like you're not working for free you're working for profit share here's the legals here's how it's all set up and this i did a talk on this at gdc for anyone who's interested in like 2016 or something it's the amelo postmortem where i go into it in a lot of detail but essentially it worked like this um, every single task on the project is assigned a number of points. And those points are generally based on like what it would take a competent professional to do it to the quality level that we require. So let's say it's a card illustration and that might say, I'm just making numbers up, right? But let's say it would take someone five hours, um, then that card is worth five points. And then, so Ty would work with an illustrator that we've sort of contracted that signed up the point system. And if they felt that, you know, be like, yeah, okay, I can do it for five points. And they do it out of hours, you know, there's no real aggressive timelines or whatever. Um, And if they deliver that card to the quality that we need, and sometimes Ty would work back and forth with them. So it might take them a little bit longer than they expected, but you'd always get your five points when it was done. Let's say you do 20 cards for five points, you got a hundred points, in the project and then hypothetically the project's a thousand points or whatever, um, then you get 10% of the profit because you have a hundred of a thousand points. That's how it worked, as simple as that. And we sat down the five of us one day. This is one of the most freakish things I've ever done in video games. I reckon it really speaks to our level of experience from shipping games is pitch the ship cycle as well, is after we prototyped the video game, sorry, Armello, well, yeah, the video game on paper, which is a whole process I can go to, into as well. We did it for over eight months. Every week we would come with a new iteration. We sat down and we're like, all right, if this is the game, what are the tasks involved in making the video game? So we went down and we, in a Google sheet, the five of us worked together and crashed so many times through the day, but like every sort of task that we could think of, all the animations for the heroes, the board, the assets through the skybox, like whatever. Um, and we scoped out the entire project and basically got our points estimate. And so that we knew generally like what it was going to be in regards to how much profit folks were going to get and, you know, what was involved and everything. And that was scarily accurate. I don't know why. I think it was, again, just the level of experience that we had shipping games or something. But that was really quite accurate. And we had, to our surprise, I think in at that point in time, the 
indie renaissance and the allure of making something indie for a lot of these studio folk was so strong that as soon as people saw like a crew of competent, like experienced professionals mm-hmm. having an indie project that had this really solid structure to it, that was like, you know, backed legally and very secure that like folks were just like, yeah, I'm on board. Let's do it. And so everyone said, yes, we ended up having like crazy people working on the project, like folks from Weta and Lisa Gerard did our soundtrack, you know, Academy Award winning composer. And, you know, she was on the point system, just like everyone else. It was, it was absolutely wild. Um, and it worked for a certain amount of time. And then I think when we got to about 2013, the scale of it grew to a point where we needed to have end of 2013, we needed to have programmers sort of together centrally with like a producer designer. Right. And so we did that start of 2014 and then it sort of saw us through pretty much. How did you make that transition at that point? So the end of 2013 was really rough. Like the second half of that year, um, it just ground to a halt. I think John was getting like really tired of the project and finding Mm -hmm. it, finding it pretty hard being like one of the only sole programmers because (laughs) <laughs> funnily enough art like and it makes sense when you think about it artists were all over it like yeah, was, i was about to say i was like okay i think i might think of my own projects it's mm-hmm. like yeah roughly half of the man hours yeah. that go into it you could probably chop up into yeah. little content chunks yeah, yeah. like you know we need a chariot and mm-hmm. we need a grassland tile mm-hmm. and we need a piece of event art and yeah, we need yeah. some writing and we need 30 events and whatever mm-hmm. but a good half of the project is just kind of like and then you also work on making it good. Yeah. You know, yeah. and a lot of that is programming time. A lot of that is design time. Yeah. A lot of times when I go into work or whatever, I don't know what I'm actually going to do today. Totally. I just, I start, you know, I do one thing and then I know something bugs mm-hmm. me and I go down a certain path and yeah. then it unlocks an idea. And by the end of the day, I've, you know, made some progress, but I didn't know I was going to start. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to do that at the end of the day. So like. We had that. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things, first of all, production tasks just couldn't be scoped out at all. Any sort of production or project management style stuff is so much of it is firefighting or things arising that day or, you know, you know, you're only, it's based off like the week or two weeks, that sprint ahead that you have that that was almost impossible to track. And I think we sort of, I almost just didn't end up tracking my own hours or points for a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the programming stuff was interesting though, because it was similar. Like there were some tasks that were very discreet and that we could scope out and we did at the start, but then there was a bunch that, that weren't, you know? Um, and, one of the interesting things that I was sort of talking about before is artists would say yes instantly because we yep. Ty would open up his like Dropbox treasure trove of all of the art that these amazing artists had done before. And as an artist, a lot of the time you're at the whims of whatever vessel you're attaching yourself to. You know, like if you're a say if you're if you're an artist and you're making a book, like you, you need a writer yep. who's making the book, or if you're you know. Um, if you're making a game, you need a programmer to like put your art in the game and make it happen and everything. And so they were happy to just attach themselves to something. But something we found with the programmers when we would approach them and start talking to them, they'd be very keen. And then they'd usually kind of just flake out when it push came to shove and them actually coming onto the project. And I, I totally think it was just because they, everyone has their own projects in their head. and But most people can't get them off the ground. But a programmer can just boot up a new file or, you know, open up Unity and start their own project, you know? And so when push came to shove and they're like, I'm going to work on this passion project for free, I think a lot of them were just like, well... I'd take a job that pays me money. exactly. I'll just work on my own thing or I'll just keep working on the thing. And so we got to a point where, yeah, at the end of 2013, it was really hard for us to find programmers and stuff. And Probably, I suppose, to... Maybe you should continue what they're saying, but I imagine you probably had some artists who were like they had another job mm-hmm. and this was just like, this is some fun thing I do on the side. And yeah. because the deadline, you know, I can go as 
fast yeah. or slow as I need to, like yeah, that's exactly. fine. You know, like art is the great parallel processing task, <laughs> right? You know, for game development. Yeah. But code is not at all. Absolutely. So, anyway, continue. And so that's what we needed to do. So we were like, okay. Um, because you know, I think all of us were kind of getting tired. We were almost towards the end. We're like, is this thing not gonna happen? You know? Um and we felt for the artists, artists started to drop off because they were making up, but then they weren't seeing it in the game because mm-hmm. we didn't have the, you know, the coding power to put it in. And um, I was like, let's pitch Vic Screen, again, our fantastic funding body. I said, let's just pitch. There's this new thing um, called the Arcade, which was a co-working video game development co-working space that people were trying to get off the ground in Melbourne. I said, let's let's pitch Vic Screen on just getting me and three pro or two programmers or whatever into the arcade on hot desks. We'll pitch them that we're going to get to alpha and it will do it in like eight weeks or something. And then we're going to go to Kickstarter, but this is like the proving ground and we've got all this stuff to show for it. And Vic Screen, who awesome, you know, um, they just said yes. And we got sort of a bit of money to pay for myself and it ended up being three programmers in there for those eight weeks. And within six weeks, we'd like hit alpha. It was like the, it was the perfect solution you know it just like fixed almost all of our problems and we got to build out every week and then of course like it awoken all the artists and everyone else making content and the game just went leaps and bounds ahead then we launched the kickstarter the kickstarter did really well we asked for two hundred thousand, and we got something like 305 or 350 or something and, and what, then, what were you showing in the Kickstarter? Um, we showed, we had some basic footage of like, we had like a tech demo where you could like move a character around the world and play some cards and do a little bit of combat. But it was very, there was no game there. It was kind of just some interactivity that allowed me to demo the game and went well showing people. But we also had the full prototype of the game and paper that we could that we could play and everything. And so we just basically did, told our story on Kickstarter. Okay. And, what do you think people connected with? I'm, when I've, whenever I consider going down Kickstarter, the Kickstarter path, I'm always kind of just afraid of like the very first step of like, mm-hmm. why would anyone care about yeah. this to begin with, right? Like, um, If I can be arrogant about our studio for a second, I think League of Geeks is very, very good at building brands and like selling the, selling like, you know, when people say sell the, sell the sizzle, not the sausage, mm-hmm. like we're very good at selling the sizzle. And we did that with Armello very well. Is this story of taking a tabletop adventure and bringing it to life, but in this anthropomorphic dark fantasy world, mm-hmm. we knew that it would just like hook people on so many different nostalgia levels, like the board games that they played with their family and friends, you know, and that they wanted to do now um, that like the old, like Don Bluth animations or whatever yep. they watched as a kid, like all these types of things. And I think it just resonated with so many people. It was one of those things. I think Nath from Cappy said it once. He was like, I didn't know that I wanted a digital board game until I saw Amello. And then I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'd play that, you know, type of thing. Um, and I think that just struck a chord with a lot of people. And then also you can't, <laughs> can't deny it, the furries as well. They came out of the, came out of the woodwork, you know, like there's not people, you know, anthropomorph- anthropomorphic artwork is so hard to do. Like it's yeah. a knife edge, right? On one side, you got like, you know, cute Disney animals. And on the other side, you got sexy wolves with six packs, you know, like, and we were trying to like balance on the knife edge <laughs> and not fall. The- yeah, thread the needle. Exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I was playing it uh, recently and I hit up the options menu and I saw furry mode. And I was like, 
I was like, I know you guys are probably, you know, having furry fans. And they're like, is this a furry mode? And they're like, oh, oh it's fury, fury. mode. And I was like, it's like, maybe you should have a furry mode now that I think about it. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Or maybe yeah, it's always in, in furry, furry mode. But I mean, it's actually, it's, it's really like shout out to the furry community in Armello because like we're, none of us are furries. And we actually only realized that we were kind of going to be just like trouncing into that whole like ir- yeah. arena, yeah. like when we were halfway through the game. Yeah. yeah. But what, um, what really like we realized in hindsight is that because it's so hard to make this anthropomorphic content, like especially in 2D and stuff, you know, like these old animations, they're so, this community is so starved for it. Like I think one of the reasons why they do so, why there's so much fan art in the furry community is because they're starved of content. Yeah, so no they're just left stuff. to make it themselves. Well, that's the story of a lot of Kickstarter stuff, especially yeah. during that era, right? Like it was all, all the successes were all these underserved communities, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we rode, I think we came in at the last, on, on the last wave of all of that. Like, you know, it was us and Darkest Dungeon and then it started the bubble burst a bit. Um, but that enabled us to get into a studio. And so we, we went from like having a f- three or four hot desks in the arcade to moving like 20 meters over to one of the offices that they had there. And I then, um, you know, Blake one day was just like, I quit my job. I'm coming in. And I was like, okay, you're managing the finances. If you, if you, if you think we can do it, but that fine, was after me. the Kickstarter, after the Kickstarter. Until then you guys were all still doing your all, full time. Yeah. And so if you got paid as well, you didn't get your points or whatever. So then we had some people come in like, you know, I'm sorry, you got your points at the end, but you weren't earning points every day. If you're getting paid, you choose either or. And so we had, we ended up having like five, six, seven people in the studio and that kind of, the Kickstarter, as well as a PlayStation deal, like, you know, 20 grand from Indie Fund or something like that, that kind of, and then some money from Early Access got us got us through to the full release. Wow. Yeah. Whew. Well, let's see. There's a lot to, I want to talk about the, the game itself a little bit. Mm. Um, I, although I guess I'm still curious, like the uh, the point system. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, because it's funny because you could start with this very kind of innovative model. Yeah. But eventually you had kind of, you had to kind of like, take a couple steps back yeah. towards a more kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah. traditional model. Exactly. Um, and so a lot of the people you ended up just paying, but mm-hmm. presumably you had to kind of figure out a way to, to make points work for people who had more nebulous tasks, yep. I guess. Yeah. Um, so it just, I can't I think it kind of worked out organically that the folks who had more nebulous tasks ended up being in the studio and getting paid because yeah. that's where you had to be in the engine room, like as a producer or a community manager or, yeah. you know, like a, you know, a, um, a designer or something like that. Um, so that was, that was that. And we did still track points on some of those things when they were well-defined or discreet. Was there tension about the sense that, like, if the game is, you don't know how well the game's going to yeah, do, yeah. like, all these points people, they're yeah. the ones who might make the profit yeah. if the game succeeds, <laughs> and the people who took money just get the money. But it's like, the funny thing about that is that it's kind of this, like, prisoner's dilemma of, like, you don't know which way it's going to go yeah, sure, almost, sure. right? Like, yeah. so we had some people, I remember, you know, um, Matt, one of our fantastic gameplay programmers, he worked three days a week and then took points two days a week. So he be, be, he, yeah, yeah. he hedged his bets. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah, spot on. That's funny. Um, but anyway, when the game so when the game came out, um, you know, we started dishing out every quarter we would pay out from profit share, and it ended up that over time, by the time it wrapped up, because it didn't, I'll speak about how in a bit. We gave out over a million dollars in profit share oh. um, to everyone, and it worked out to be a hundred bucks and a point essentially. Huh. So people yeah. who did work for points over all the years, because it took us four years to get the game out, people who worked for points sometimes like right from the very start, um, like Gav, you know, my cousin who works for us now, he's a wicked talented three D modeler. He did all the three D models in um, LO. He was on from the very start. 
Um, and, you know, he got like a hundred bucks a point sort of towards the end in regards to value. So every hour that he was working generally paid him about a hundred bucks an hour, you know? Okay. Yeah. So it worked out, but what yeah. we did, you're right in that, like it kind of, when we had to go to this more conventional model of paying people, it started to, it started to sort of fall apart. And so we ended up, it was open for, it was open-ended and it never really had a sunset on it, you know? Um, but we realized that because again, we weren't planning to support the game post-launch. Well, um, that's the other thing yeah. is like Armello is kind of famous as one of these games that you just kind of developed forever, yeah. right? And at that point, you're completely off the chart, yeah. right? Because totally. the, the, the money that's being, you, these people are all being paid. They yeah. have to keep working on it. And there's a very tenuous connection between their work and the new work and the, yeah. And like the money that's coming in from the game and who should get what and yeah. like what, you know, what does this person's work contribute to, to what, I mean, yeah. you, you're not going to just start letting people, I mean, you probably have whatever. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, no, it's all right. nebulous at that point. Right? Absolutely. And so we did reach a point, like if we just fast forward to say like 2019 or something like that, 2018. Yeah. The game's been out by for about three years, mid 2018. It's doing really good numbers but we got a team of 15 to 16 people in the studio who were all being paid and some of them yep. weren't there before launch yep. and we're not because also for us as a studio it's now not financially wise for us to task people on points it's better to just pay people so yep. even folks like we had an artist jerome jacinto super talented who worked on points but from the philippines but now we would just contract him and just pay him the standard but you know obviously competitive rate for his work um so there were no more points going out but what happened is yeah around 2018 there'd be like five or six of us on the team that still had a cut in the point because of our points and we're getting profit share every quarter but the other 10 people at the studio had been hired since then and we're just getting paid and so they'd kind of be like all right everyone new profit share and there'd be some hooting and hollering <laughs> for like six people and the other 10 are like kind of just doing their tasks that they're getting paid for but the, so that was kind of weird we felt that that wasn't great and that that was bad but one of the and so we wanted to clean that up but the main reason that we wanted to clean it up was Armello cost us about, in, let's say in USD, like, you know, 1.5 million or whatever um, up until launch. But by the time we'd finished on Armello, we'd spent another 8 million sure. or something, oh, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. Because we're now, instead of developing with a small team together to launch, we've now got a full team supporting it post-launch. Yeah. I, mean, I, I have no idea what Old World is going to cost. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like an impossible question to answer yeah. because we're just still working on the game. You yeah, know? exactly. Like, it's not... And so what happens then is the profit share is just completely disproportionate to like, like they shouldn't be getting that profit. Like League of Geeks, the studio should effectively be getting that profit at that point in time. But then you have the ethical and moral questions of like, but they they put up there, yeah, put skin in the game at the start when it wasn't guaranteed and everything. Yeah. So what we did in the end was we were like, okay, well, we have to sunset this at some point. And also the admin was crazy because the points model was kind of simple, but anytime when people have differing percentages of points and everything, the math is crazy and the admin mm. is a, is a bit of a head fuck. And so we were like, um, we just went through rounds of like just every round where we could profit share, we would just offer to buy people's points out and we would put a multiple on it. So it'd be like, we'll buy your points at 2X if you want out. And like, so for some people that, you know, when it started to peter off, because post 2018, the game started to not make as much as it was. And so people who had small percentage shares weren't seeing much. And so they're like, oh, well, I could keep getting a check every quarter for, you know, 50 bucks or something, or I could just cash a check now for 500 or 400 and, you know, that's fine. Um, and so, and then eventually at the end, we were like, okay, there's only a few people left. 
it's time to like put this thing to bed. We want to switch to a company profit share model. Mm-hmm. And so we just put like a crazy multiple. I think it was like four or five X on. And we did it right before Christmas time when we knew that people would like appreciate it. And we also just said to folks, we're like, hey, we're looking to wrap this up. And and we looked after everyone so well. And every quarter we put out like a big post to the, you know, the folks who are in on it to, you know, let them know how well gone that everyone was like, hell yeah, let's go. Thanks for the, thanks for the ride. Right. And so that ended them, the Mallow-based points model. And now we, we still have a profit share system at League of Geeks because we strongly believe in it, but it's now company-wide. So it's not project-based and it's based on, you know, being an employee at the company and you earn a particular um, amount of profit share at Vests over two years. And then it's just the com- 20% of the company profit is just whenever there is profit is just shaved off every quarter and we give 15 to the team and then 5% to a charity of the team's choosing. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, how do you define profit? That's a really great question. <laughs> because you talk about all these like, well, it's just all this math out of profit. Yeah. It's like, that's the that's the hard yeah. part, actually. There's yeah. a great Twitter thread that, that gets bumped every year by the, the screenwriter of Men in Black. Right. Um, and he's... <laughs> um, he just makes this running joke out of Hollywood economics because he gets uh, he's he's promised like five percent of the net of the profits <laughs> of, of the. <laughs> but of it the, never the makes any profit. He's, ne- he's never given you know like every year he's like oh we've made six hundred million on on the thing and he's like and guess what their expenses went up like they they made ten million <laughs> this year on you know rentals or whatever and guess what their expenses went up another ten million too it always ends up being the exact same and it's just it's just comical yeah, you know but totally. anyway so that's the worst version. Yeah. So what's what's your answer? For us, it's cumulative profit. So basically, you know, because we're running a studio where, you know, we're having to amortize like funds over time, you know, like we'll have to, we might get say an inject, like for example, when we're working with private division, we're doing a, you know, a project with them. um, They would dump money into our account every quarter for a milestone that we would deliver. But like that money is, could be considered revenue, Right. But right. we need to spend that money on yep. the game. So we spend that out. So there are things that are like marked off as this is development revenue. But when stuff like sales, obviously anything like grants and other stuff, that's not recognized as profit or whatever. But once a project is out there in the wild and then it's just earning, essentially once we hit cumulative profit, like the company hasn't doesn't have any running losses or whatever, that whatever that is is recognized. Like we actually just had, we hadn't had any profit share in a while because we were running we were basically we've got two games yeah you're spending your money we're spending all our money we want to spend every cent that we have on making these new games you know we don't have these huge war chests of um you know we're scaling the company um but we just had a profit share recently kind of surprised us (laughs) finance manager holger was like you you guys have profit share this this quarter we're like oh awesome so i think it was a small one you know everyone at the studio is going to get like a couple hundred bucks or something like that there's something nice in their stocking for the month of month of august but when we ship these games you know we imagine that like we'll um will be in profit and palm off some to the team. And it really has a material, for most people it doesn't, you know, impact their day-to-day. But I think when push comes to shove, it does have a bit of a material impact on the decisions or how the team operate. Like there is a difference between a team that's financially invested in like what's going on as opposed to someone who's just cutting a check at the end of the day. And, you know, you're working on, especially because we're an independent studio, we're making our own IP in these games that like we were talking about before, we're trying to sort of like... you know, do brave new things in this in this genre. Like it's really it's fucking hard, as you know. And so that extra like skin in the game for people, I think it really really helps. Um, helps rally people. There was a point on our mallow where we were coming into release, and we had done this deal with PlayStation to be in this thing called Vote to Play, which was mm-hmm. there this new worldwide 
thing that they were going to do for PlayStation Plus where you could vote on what game was going to be in PlayStation Plus next month. And they wanted three indie games to vote on and we were one of them. And so you got money for being in it and then you got money for being, if you were the game that like was chosen as well and was given away for free or whatever, right? So to be a part of that though, we had to bring in our release date by two weeks. And then on top of that, we weren't going to release Asian territories until six months post-launch, but PlayStation were like, no, 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 this is a worldwide thing. If you want in on this deal and this money, you got to bring that in as well. And that's not a that's not a decision that I can just make for the team, you know, especially when there's only like 10 of us or something. I can't just be like, guess what, everyone? It's coming in. Um, we knew that we were going to have to put in significant hours. I wouldn't say crunch or anything, but like hectic hours, like a lot of overtime to like get that going. And so we actually went to the team and we asked them and we just said, hey, because we're very trying, we we practice hyper-transparency with our team and especially on the business side of things and everything. And um, we just went to them and we were like, hey, just got off the call with PlayStation. This is the deal. The date's got to come in by two weeks. Asian territories have to come in by six months. This is what it means. When we launch, this will put us in the black, meaning that everything that we own after that will essentially be profit. Um, you know, we will have already recouped. Uh, what do you say? And everyone on the team was basically like, yeah, let's do it because they were cut in. Like mm -hmm. everyone in that room had profit share on the project. And I can I totally imagine I would have probably been the same where if it wasn't like, if I wasn't cut in on profit share and someone said that to me, I'd be like, oh God, okay, well, it's going to be good for you. <laughs> but I guess I'm still getting paid the same amount to, you know, bust my gut. But for everyone else that knew that like, the project was going to be more commercially successful because of the support of PlayStation. And it was the largest marketing initiative we were a part of. Like they put, well, easily, I reckon over 10 million bucks USD into that worldwide, that marketing. Um, <laughs> like for Ormello? Or you mean yeah, for well, for three games. Well, for three games, Like right. for this huge thing, you know, and you think about the above the line and below the line spend that they would have done on that stuff. It's, And it was just our game. When people talk to us oh. about Armello, like over the years, it would be, I backed you on Kickstarter uh -huh. or I I um, voted for you and voted the, to play. Yeah, yeah. Like they were the two biggest wow. sort of marketing beats for us for sure. Oh, man. Sometimes I hear of those marketing numbers and just like, or you could just double the budget of the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, so we got we got some we got some cash, but it wasn't anything crazy like yeah. the deals you hear of today or whatever. But for a small team, it was meaningful yeah. and it helped. And they were, they were a great team. Sony Strategic Content that was Spencer Lowe over there that really helped us out. Um but yeah, the team were the team were invested in the game and they really bought in. And so it's something that we've tried to carry through. And I would say our profit share model now is like best in class. Like right. we spoke to a bunch of studios, we did a ton of research. Olga, our finance manager, our ops and finance lead, she's just awesome. And she did all the all the groundwork and um we sort of put it together in a way that because there's also this balance, you know, with a profit share system of creating something where you can reward your team. Everyone can share in the spoils of success. But then also as a business, you don't want to like, just like shower like so much money on everyone that like it changes everyone in the studio's motivations or it cleans out the studio of the ability to like actually carry forward like the company to the next milestone. Yeah, well, the hard part is, is like the whole games industry I mean, it's it's better now, yeah. right? That like games sell kind of a little yeah. more consistently over a long period of time. But like the whole games model is about making a lot of money one year yeah. and then 
trying to use that money to spend for the next two or three or four years, yeah, right? Absolutely. Which, you know, so if you carve off twenty percent of that right, quarter, like you just lost a year of development, <laughs> yeah, you know. Exactly. So like, there's no right answer to like yeah. where you should draw that line, you know. Totally. And I think something it was something we learned from Valve. Like we've been we've been very lucky to have a close relationship with them over the years, and we've learned a lot from the the very smart folks at Valve and Steam. And like one of the things that they said to us like ages ago is. Um, you know, I was asking, you know, everyone's always so interested, including me, I was for a long time, like in the Valve way of doing things and stuff. And I was like, so like, you can just ask anyone anything about anything. And they, and the thing that was said to me was, yeah, because when someone, it doesn't matter what the task is, but every single task, if what you're doing that day, you have the broader goals and the context of the company and the business front of mind, even if it's not your responsibility, then it changes the way that you may approach that task or you may be doing something and encounter something while doing that that makes you think, hold on a second, someone should know about this or because you have the broader company goals in mind. And so at League of Geeks, like everyone's so clued in on where we're going and how the company's run and everything. And so when we say to folks like, hey, it's cumulative profit or just recently we switched our profit share from every quarter to every six months and that was on the advisement of Olga who set up the profit share because of exactly what you're talking about. is that She's like, shit, when these games release, we're gonna see a really sharp spike at the start um, and we're gonna to need to actually spread that risk out over like over um, a number of months. And so she's like, we shouldn't be doing, actually having quarterly profit share payments is a big risk to the company. Yeah. And so we didn't spin some story when we told the studio, we were just like, you're gonna get the same amount. It's just gonna come like in two chunks a year instead of four and it's gonna protect the company more and you know, on all of our jobs. And everyone's just like, thumbs up, dope. That's cool. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. Mm. So looking back on everything, <laughs> the was the point system more trouble than it was worth or was, was it like the, no. the thing that you needed? It was the thing that we needed. It's the thing that built the studio, 100%. We would never have been able to make that game without that. It were like... And with the level of investment and the people that we got on board, so the level of quality that we were able to hit... Um, and also, funnily enough, it, it gave us another story to tell too. Sure. Yeah. After we shipped the game, I traveled the world giving talks around like in Barcelona and Korea and San Francisco, GDC and everywhere, just talking about the profit share model as part of the of the game, like spoke, spoke at the Games for Change conference or something about it, you know. Um, and so it really helped with our studio profile. It helped with our business acumen going through all of that as well. Um, it built a really invested team. Like when I think about that core initial Armello team, like it was almost like we had, they were business owners themselves as well. The degree of care that they all had and how much they put themselves into the studio were so lucky and so blessed. You know, we looked after them all as well, obviously, but like it's it, it just was really, and it just, we did it so well. You know, there are things that we can look back on at the studio and we're like, yeah. oh, we fucked that up. This is not one of them. Like, and the stuff that came out at the end where it did become a bit awkward and we had to like wrap it up, you know, and it wasn't kind of really serving its purpose and we maybe lost a bit of money on it that, that we shouldn't have as a, if you're, if I'm talking sort of brutally as a company, um, then that stuff we couldn't have predicted from the start because we didn't know that we were going to go into games as a service on, on our mellow. That was an organic decision that we made. Yeah. I've learned from various signing various deals over the years that something if if it's at all possible, it's great to put a time limit on things. Yeah. That's kind of at a point where it's like, okay, this is reasonably far. Like, even if yeah. you just said like uh, there's 10 getting, years or something. Yeah, there, yeah, there's there's some limit for this profit sharing. And you know, it's gonna cut off here and like everyone would be able to okay, okay, it's gonna be a different world at that point. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm expecting this game to make money for a couple of years, mm -hmm. but you know, like 
eventually I could see how the CEO could position be in a position where this becomes a problem, right? Yeah. And like, um, it can really clean stuff up if you know there's like a, a nice way to end things. I fully um, agree. Everything we do now has a sunset clause, and every we would not sign a deal that didn't have one. Like you know, even major publishing agreements that we've signed only have like a ten year life cycle to them and everything. Because here's the thing with contracts or agreements: if we ever wanted to extend something, you know, we could just extend, extend it, it yeah. as well. You know, they're just agreements between a couple of people. Um, so if it's going well, you always can do that but yeah it's absolutely and it's something that we realized pretty quickly into it post-launch that we were like ah oh, fuck we were really we were just trying to be the the best guys we possibly yeah, sure. could you know the real like really doing right by the team and so we saw no reason mechanically or ethically or morally to like put a sunset clause on it but then once we're actually in the thick of it and you see like oh this is how this works okay yep. there is actually a moral imperative for the other people working on the game and stuff and yep, yep, yeah you're caught between two different exactly. parties who don't want to be in conflict anyway you yes know? that's so. the nice thing about sunset clauses you, everyone knows it from the beginning there's no yeah you know like it sounds like you guys navigated it pretty well yeah but like yeah, you can totally. imagine situations where it doesn't work out as yeah well, yeah so. for sure and we were scared you know like because we're we were essentially to put it like in the worst way possible. Like we were going to take away people's profit share. And that's why we did, especially in the last one, we just over-indexed on that. We were like, let's just give them like all this money. Like, let's just put a multiple on it. We want it done. And they can, and people were like, yeah, stoked. But you know, yep. you're always, you're always worried how some of these things will go. Most people are pretty fucking cool about things. We found out over the years. I think now we've got, we're at 70 people now at League of Geeks. And I, when I think about how many folks have been through there over, it'll be 13 years this January since we founded the studio. It's like, you know, easy over 150 people or something that have come through the company. And like the vast, especially after you spend all this time interviewing them and getting them in, like the vast, vast majority of them are all absolutely fantastic, wonderful people. And most people that you deal with in business are, you know. Yep. Um, and, but you, you're, you're always wondering like, am I, especially if you've got any sort of like moral backbone, you're like, am I doing right by people? Is this going to be okay? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's wrap up the business part of yeah, this, this uh, discussion, yeah. <laughs> and let's talk. So, yeah, let's talk about Armello as as a game. Mm -hmm.